Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I am the other co-host, Drew. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, it's not too wildly out there, but for a man who is unaccustomed to surprises in his life, that that minor pitch, change in pitch, was enough to throw me off, and uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know I'm always out here trying to bring color into your life, Albert. Exactly. Constantly teasing and tantalizing the various parts of my brains in the hopes that I'll be titillated. Yeah, it's the most benign form of sensory stimulation I can give you. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you you can cons- consider me stimulated? Is that, is that where we're going with this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I guess so, man. I've, I've stimulated your mind. Exactly. I've been stimulated by... Yes. Yeah, all right. So, anyways, in this week's episode, we continue our read-through of... Matt Cross Plus, or... <laughs> what sorry. are you talking I'm about? Sorry. <laughs> we continue our read-through of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, Volume 5. Sorry. I don't know where, I, where my brain was. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I think uh, it was just an instinct, and I went with it, and uh, here we are. Man, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure some some Mecha fan out there is listening to this and just aghast that you would confuse Macross <laughs> with Gundam. <laughs> How dare he! <laughs> uh, yes, but we're uh, we're reading Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin, Volume Five. So let me clarify: that is what we are reading. We are not reading Macross Plus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Drew, do you mind giving us uh, a little bit of the background, you know, just for those that are not in the know? Well, for background, people can look up our previous episodes because we have been reading through this series since the year began. We're doing one volume per month. This month, we're on volume five, which is titled Shar and Sela. Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin is written and drawn by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, and it's translated by Melissa Tanaka, published by Vertical in North America. Very good, very good. So let's start right at the beginning then, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. How about a brief recap of the last volume? So at the end of the last volume, White Base and its crew finally made it to Jabro and completed the first part of their mission. There was a big battle in Jabro, in the base, when Shar and his forces, as well as a Zeon general or admiral named Romeo, uh, attacked. Zeon forces were pretty much all wiped out. Shar did have a battle, a brief skirmish with Amro, but managed to escape. But on his way out, he came face to face with Sela, and that's when things get pretty shaken up because this whole time they've actually been siblings. Sela thought that he was dead or did at least didn't know for sure that he was alive and operating as the Red Comet. So they came face to face and he basically tells her to get out of the Federation, get out of the service, or he might end up killing her inadvertently. And then he dips so she's pretty shaken up by the encounter. That's essentially where we pick up when Volume 5 begins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's quite a cliffhanger to leave us yeah, on. Yeah, definitely a great emotional cliffhanger. But I, I do have a question for you, Albert. This volume is pretty 
different from the previous volumes. I think mm. uh, over the past few episodes, we were talking about how when you, at least the early uh, volumes of this series, because this is your first time really experiencing the story of First Gundam in any format. I remember you mentioned that the constant, uh, I guess, formula of find, you know, fighting a new battle every every single chapter was starting to wear a little thin, and you had a hard time seeing how that could play out over the course of essentially, you know, twelve volumes of, mm-hmm. of story. Mm-hmm. And things have kind of evolved over the over the past couple of volumes, and in this one, it's it's an entire almost entirely flashback which is kind of different so i'm I'm curious what your impression of that was like was this something that was welcome or was it something that kind of threw you off what was what's your general vibe on volume five if i had to say uh excuse me there are people setting off fireworks outside so you know Sorry for any of those of you who are listening. If you're distracted by it, uh, there's not much that I can do. You can, can tell them to stop. Maybe go over I, to I where they're set launching fire their to fun- the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, that'll that'll end it. <laughs> you like fireworks, do you? <laughs> okay. Well, anyways, um, yeah. So in in regards to my statement, very early on, it it really felt like, especially in those that first maybe one or two volumes, it did feel like it was just a lot of nonstop action. And I do think that it really required a a critical eye in order to capture the nuance of what was going on. You know, um, I I, I guess I could very easily just shut my brain off and just enjoy the action that was going on. But seeing as how we have a podcast that, enjoys taking the time and effort to uh, critically analyze these works. Uh, I guess it it worked in my favor in that it did put me in a position where I had to, (laughs) this might sound, uh, well, this might be telling of my reading habits, but it forced me to like pay attention to the details and actually think, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's true, man, because you can't read as many comics as we have if you take the time to slow down and think about everything, <laughs> yeah, we've got to pick and choose what we, yeah, what we really pour our brain into. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of funny because we're constantly berating stuff like Spawn because, you know, on, on its artistic merits, we look at something like that and we we go, well, yeah, we, we'll we'll say something to the to the effect of, there's really nothing. There's no there's no there there for me to work with, you know. I sure. suppose I could try, but it wouldn't be very rewarding for me personally because these just aren't very good comics. So um, you you think we should uh give Spawn another examination? I don't know. Try that is it out. Not what I said do at it, all. Do it for the podcast? No, not not in the slightest. What if what if the people want us to discuss Spawn? I'll tell you what, if we can get a hundred people to tell us in our messages, in our various messages to to tell us, if we can get a hundred people to tell us to to tell us to read Spawn, uh we'll, we'll dedicate uh, for the podcast, we will dedicate an episode to Spawn. 
Okay. Okay. And I will do it begrudgingly. My teeth will be as gritted as uh, a Rob Liefeld character <laughs> as I read that comic. I will just be gritting my teeth, clenching my fist, and puckering my butthole. Just <laughs> uh, my body will just be an entire clenched singular unit of muscles as I read that book of just hate. All right. All right. So now we, we know a path to get you on that track. We, we know yeah. what to do in order to get you to do this. See, see what I do for you, the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, anyways, if the people so speak, then it shall be done. What, exactly. hey, what, what, what about this man? What if it's, just one guy who leaves a hundred messages. I'm sure that'll do something for the algorithm, right? I mean, that's engagement, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't know how it works. I don't know how algorithms work. I don't know what what the science or the functions behind uh, the scenes are. Uh, so I'm just gonna assume that that's how it works. So if one guy <laughs> spams us a hundred times, uh. At least I will be able to put a name with my hate. <laughs> <laughs> all right. How's all right. that? How that? That that is fair enough, my friend. Right. Anyways, in regards to back to uh, Gundam: The Origin, <clears throat> uh, what I was trying to get get to was the yeah. So those first volumes were pretty nonstop action, and um, I think. Because I was reading it with the the mind of uh, with keeping in mind that there are twelve volumes of this, and after reading the few bits and pieces that I did read, just how much action was going on, I wondered if if the entirety of the series would just be you know, to, to, to borrow a phrase from Drew, but like, you know, just moving from set piece to set piece, just action scene to action scene. And I didn't, yeah, I was just kind of, I don't know if I was entirely against that, but I was open-minded enough that I was willing to entertain that even if it did do that, it could be entertaining and not necessarily mind-numbing because there's, there are clearly so many action movies or action comics that don't do that well. So Mm-hmm. I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt, but that being said, now that we enter this particular volume of the origin, I will say that this volume was probably more to my personal tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to oversimplify too much about it by being reductive in my view of it, but I will say that um, I th- so uh, I w- I will say this in terms of this episode being uh almost entirely a flashback episode that just provides a whole lot of context for what's going on. Um, I do think that one of the things that I find intriguing about this particular issue or volume is that um it does establish what the the background and the political intrigue of their world is and mm-hmm. uh and you know as i was saying before you know not not to be like overly reductive in my assessment of it but i will say that it does kind of give me 
like Game of Thrones vibes before Game of Thrones in the sense that there's just a lot of political intrigue going on and, uh, you know, posturing and, uh, I guess, backstabbing and uh, gamesmanship that's occurring in this volume where, <clears throat> where, yeah, you really get to see the characters at their best, if, if I had to say. Um, even even someone like Shar, who I'll say very early on in the volume, he, he he's he's kind of he's a charming character. He's got a couple of good uh like moments here and there. Uh like maybe not to the degree where I have the same amount of love for him as the Char stands do, but uh I will say that in this volume, I I got to see what it was that made him, you know, such a cunning and ruthless character, you know, mm-hmm. besides killing uh, that one uh, Zeon, I don't know what he was, like Prince Garma. or something? Garma, yeah. right? Like, yeah. there was something about seeing him as a child and maturing into a young man who who is just, you know, politically ruthless and tactically ruthless, and just seeing all that play out that, I think it cemented in my mind, okay, I I, I, I can get behind this character in terms of what what his appeal to people is, you know? Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I can see what that appeal is, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's my longer than I was expecting answer for that. But anyway. Nice man. No, that, yeah. no, I like that. I like I like to hear that. I'm I'm glad you appreciated it. To be honest, like this this volume was what I had in mind when I suggested that we read this. Uh-huh. Because I just made the presumption that the material that is covered in volume five, that's the kind of stuff that would draw you in and intrigue you. So I was just hoping if we can get Albert to volume five, I really want to <laughs> see what he thinks. Is that seriously what you were thinking? That, that was my genuine thought back when I suggested we read this series. I didn't yeah. want to tell you, uh, you know, ahead of time, just stick yeah. around through volume five. You know, I, I figured I would just let you enjoy the story as it unfolds naturally yeah, yeah, for yeah. you for the first time. So yeah. I, I was I was pretty much just waiting for you to get to this part because, yeah, definitely with your interest in history and politics, this was the kind of thing that I thought would be right up your alley. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say so. There's, and again, not to be like overly reduc- reductive in the like uh, description of it, but like I don't think that the like I said, there's there's a lot that reminds me of those early seasons of Game of Thrones and just where you're just watching people um, collect power behind the scenes and just watching the execution of their uh, power plays and the the and finding out what the logic and reasoning behind all that is and to watch, you know as all these different characters rise and fall until, you know, 
until there can only be one who sits upon the Game of Thrones. Yeah. Like to have that all finally play out and to have it done well because to to do those kinds of stories well, it's a pretty hard and rare thing to do. I think often there are a lot of people who who think that it's a lot easier to do. Um I've heard people who talk about Jeff Johns's uh uh Green Lantern uh Sinestro Core War or the, the, the whatever the thing with all the you know the multicolored rings or whatever and yes. they look at that and they're like yeah this is you know this is about all these various cliques of power rings and all the gamesmanship and all the all the uh you know political power plays behind the scenes as you know they build up to a giant war between all these uh Green Lantern rings that's the way to do it and it it makes me flaccid. I'm not impressed. <laughs> you not hear that, stimul- Jeff Johns? It's not stimulating. You hear that, Jeff Johns? You limp my noodle. <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure he would be offended if he heard you say that to him. He should be. He should be all about stiffening noodles. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, man. <laughs> he should take that as an insult (laughs) (laughs) it's as far as insults go it's one of the more creative ones we've had on this podcast thank you thank you he's he's a he's a failure at limping at uh, stiffening my noodle so there we go if if we were to ever cut a promo clip of our podcast where we just play different highlights and voice clips from throughout our 127 episodes that would definitely have to be in there somewhere. Thanks, man. I, I'd like to think that there'd be some nuggets in there. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things so, about uh, Volume 5 that I also wanted to mention, I don't know if, if you're going to have any thoughts on this, but I at least want to share it on air, is that the material that's covered in the flashback is completely brand new for this story. Because it was not in the original anime. If you watch the 1979 <clears throat> Mobile Suit Gundam or even the the recut compilation films in the early 80s, there is no flashback of Shar and Sela when they were growing up. Some of the stuff is alluded to and maybe hinted at, mm. but this is the first time that we're actually seeing a significant expansion of this part of the lore and backstory of the universal century. Yeah. I like it. You know, it's, I think that's a pretty impressive thing to do is a lot of the times, once you've established a certain lore, um, adding to it is a pretty tricky task because, you know, you never know whether what you add is going to really uh, is really going to advance or improve the existing work or if it's going to drag it down and make it worse, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do think yeah, I didn't know that because again, I I haven't watched the anime and for you to tell me that all this this entire volume of backstory was completely new mm-hmm. like it makes me wonder about the anime and what that experience would be like. And it also makes me wonder, well, not even wonder, but it makes me think that if I had watched the anime and I had read this, 
it it feels almost seamless and it feels like it it was almost naturally a part of it from the beginning so i do yeah. think that's a good indicator of one their level of craft as well as uh the quality of what it adds to the overall story you know mm-hmm. so Definitely. I, I i think that's uh yeah, I think that speaks well for what we just read, and uh, and again, I'm I'm curious to see. I'm curious to watch the anime at some point, and even the movie that's coming out. Yeah, yeah. Did you know? I I don't remember if I ever told you clearly, but there's actually an anime adaptation of Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin, but this one, this adapt, this anime only adapts the flashback material from the manga. Oh. Yeah, and that and that anime, it was I believe 6 episodes in OVA, so each episode was like around 50 minutes with pretty high animation quality. It was yeah. made it was made or it was directed by Yasuhiko himself. That was his return to anime directing after a bunch of years away from animation where he was when he was solely focusing on his manga yeah so does that mean if you watch those if you space it out right you can watch the original series as well as the ovas and it would more or less uh mirror the reading experience i think there'll still be some variations because the manga does streamline a lot of the story uh, Uh told in the uh tv series there's okay. there are a few episodes in the TV series that are, um, I guess, not to be dismissive, but I, I guess you could say a little less consequential than others, where they tell kind of these like one-off stories with characters that never really appear outside of that specific episode. So there's a lot of stuff that just gets ignored in in this manga, and it it streamlines it and gets rid of. Um, I think some confusing elements specifically with geography because in the anime I'm not really sure what they were thinking at the time uh, when they were making it but when white base lands on earth it kind of feels like they go all across the planet before they go to Jabro whereas with this one in the manga it's very more it's more realistic more strategic when they I remember in one of the early volumes um they actually discuss their route and you know they're going to land in North America on the west coast of North America and then travel south towards South America and you know it ge- geographically it's logical and it makes sense but that that kind of uh consistency is sort of absent from the TV series it just wasn't really a priority it was more important to just have them go on adventures mm, mm. so it's yeah it's stuff like that uh, that w- would be a little different, but the overall structure of the plot, the characters are all true to each other. Um, so there, there are definitely a good amount of similarities. I, I still think that the manga is probably the ideal way to experience the story. But with that said, I don't think watching the anime is going to be a waste of time either. I think there's still stuff in the TV series that is still enjoyable even today you know 40 something years after it originally came out 
and yeah, the movies yeah. I, I still have love for the movies too yeah uh well i have a question for you then while mm-hmm. we're discussing you know just the fact that this is material that's newly added or you know relatively newly added to mm-hmm. the original source but is this something that has been accepted over of for the most part by like diehard uh gundam fans or is this like how how's How's it overall received by that particular community? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I feel more confident saying that manga fans or and manga readers have a lot of love for the origin as a whole. I think in pockets of Gundam fandom specifically, I think the flashback arc in particular does have some detractors or maybe there it's i guess you could say it's a little bit controversial and i'm not exactly sure why because i don't i try not to spend too much time (laughs) diving into the negative (laughs) little pockets of various fandoms just because it can be so toxic although to be clear occasionally there is something gratifying about yeah finding the right kind of hateful moron that i can mock <laughs> exactly exactly you're you're right man you're right yeah. <laughs> sometimes i do it but I, I haven't done it with with gundam i i couldn't specifically say why some people some fans don't like the the flashback material as much but if i had to guess there's a chance it could be because maybe they're anime purists and they just wanted the manga to you know stick too close stick closer to the anime and not try to expand on the material by inserting new stuff or maybe people don't really care for seeing char's origin you know him being this extremely popular character like what could possibly live up in their imaginations or what could possibly live up to what they already have in their imaginations you know it's kind of like doing a wolverine origin story in a way yeah that's how that's kind of how i think of it but i don't know uh, that's kind of weird though yeah in that maybe if it was bad if if what you got ended up being bad i could empathize with that a little Mm -hmm. more but Mm -hmm. you know like what's 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 your alternative right like it's just I don't know. It's just the type of thing where I think of, again, this, you know, I think of that particular type of fan, and maybe this is a straw man sort of argument, but, you know, someone who's just so stuck in their ways and who just likes what they want so much that the idea of any sort of change to that whatsoever is just blasphemous. Yeah. It's just, it just makes me think, well, when when is it okay and when is it not okay at that point for this person like it, it almost feels like there's no pleasing them at all that yeah that is true you know i can believe that yeah i've also heard some people critique the fact that seeing a young char being so competent and good at everything is kind of hard to believe um no Okay, so here's here's another comparison that it makes me think of, and I think this is the kind of story that 
that fits in my wheelhouse a little bit. But one, it makes me think of something like Ender's Game, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you have just these little kids. It's a story about these little kids in uh, military school who are basically the fate and future of all society. And as a result, they're not just little kids. They're, you know, they're hardened strategists that are just tactical as geniuses. Yeah. Tactical geniuses who are just as cruel and just as conniving as any adult, you know, if so, not more so, if not more so exactly. So it's, I, I do personally enjoy those kinds of stories where uh, you do have where you can have a kid be a villain. Uh, there's something pretty depraved and menacing about that in its own way. Mm-hmm. I, it, it reminds me of another comic. I remember I was uh, talking with you about it once, but it was Jason Aaron's uh, Wolverine and the X-Men. Yeah. And one of the elements that he introduced in his run was a new Hellfire Club. And this Hellfire Club was made up of these little kids. That's you know? right. You hope. And go ahead. No, I was just saying I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And but the thing about these little kids were they were all just almost cartoonishly evil. And I was talking to you about it and I thought it was something that was kind of funny and kind of entertaining in its own way like it was different enough where i was like you know what i i like it like i'm i'm down to see where this new hellfire club goes i i'm down to see like this new group of villains and see what they do but i remember we were talking and you you basically said that you found it a little hard to believe because you know real kids in real life and Kids are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it's, something I would have said. It was hard for you to believe that kids could be that threatening to adults. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. So, the idea that Char, for me anyways, that he was, he was always just this little hardened little kid who was savvy and dangerous and, and and especially since they don't play it off like he's uh you know Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone or something where <laughs> he's he's a uh, more of a comical character the the fact that they play it straight I can buy into it it's mm-hmm. it's not something that out of all the things in fiction that make me stop and ponder and ask myself like whether it is it requires that i uh what's it called uh uh, ignore reality in order for me to accept uh the the premise like Mm -hmm. as 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 far as concepts go that is not high up there on my list of things that make me uh suspend my disbelief certainly better to have evil child geniuses than nanites Oh, yeah, by far. <laughs> by far. Uh, you yeah. hate your nanites. I hate my nanites. Uh, time traveling is something where I need them to do... They need to do a pretty good job of it to sell me on it. Like, if it's just another... Yeah, we've we've done our spiel on this, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. 
Yeah. What about you? Do I enjoy the this flashback stuff? Well, no. Is that what you're asking me. Uh, uh, I meant. Uh, what What was your original uh, uh, premise that you? Not premise, but the original thing that you proposed, the idea that Char, as a kid, would be, you know, yeah, just so bad to the bone and good at everything that he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard some people say that it, it's, it's almost like, not exactly like a Mary Sue, but kind of similar to that idea of having a character that is just automatically so good at doing whatever he tries. Yeah, I mean. I guess I can un- I can kind of see where they're coming from. I don't really it doesn't bother me in this story whatsoever. Yeah. I'm I'm pretty much with you on this one where it it's it's not so far-fetched that I'm con- I'm suddenly jolted out of my suspension of disbelief. You know, I'm mm-hmm. still completely into the story even yeah. as I see a little kid Shar uh, you know, sit in the gunner seat of a gun tank and blow up an enemy gun tank. Yeah. You know, well, it, it's it doesn't feel that far fetched to me. Can I propose something? Of course. This As... is the first time someone's proposed something to me. <sighs> okay, I, I should have really thought about how I phrased that. <laughs> 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 But anyways, what I was going to say is, even with the concept of something like a Mary Sue, right, where, uh-huh. I, I don't know, here's here's a thought that I just had. So for those of you who are listening who aren't too familiar with what Mary Sue is, it's usually often uh, a term used to describe characters that are just automatically good at everything that they do, to the point where... It's almost like author wish fulfillment. Yeah, where the character is so powerful and talented right at the very beginning that it almost doesn't feel realistic that they're that good at what they do. And it feels almost like a deus ex machina in terms of how the conflict is resolved, right? Mm Because it's like, well, this person who just got their powers for the very first time was able to do a whole bunch of kung fu and they beat the crap out of thanos the end you know (laughs) yeah and that might be like an overly reductive way to look at it but i do often think that people who use the idea of a mary sue uh you know as a as a mean of like denigrating certain ideas i do think they are pretty reductive in uh what they're thinking but what Mm, i was going to propose is uh, do you think that that idea of like Mary Sue is only problematic when it's applied to the protagonist of a story? Like, if you have an antagonist who's a Mary Sue, is that more acceptable? Because, you know, in order for a hero to have conflict in whatever story they're working in they need to be up against a plausible and believable threat in whatever villain they're facing right right so maybe it's not quite as important that this person this villain this antagonist has all these powers and these abilities because in the end 
one, they need to be menacing. Two, they'll be overcome by whoever the hero is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Food for thought. That is a good philosophical question. I, I would ha- I would have to think about it. I mean, offhand, yeah. I would probably say I still don't really think it would be a great idea to treat an antagonist as a Mary Sue for pretty similar reasons as the protagonist, because I think if you create an antagonist that is basically a stand-in for the author and is able to do and accomplish anything without any particular limits, just so you can have the protagonist demonstrate his superiority by triumphing against him, mm-hmm. that that doesn't really make sense to me either, just because the the victory then would feel Hollow. cheapened. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I don't know. Th- that is an interesting question I haven't thought of. I I would have to think about it some more. Maybe maybe uh with enough thought I'll come to a different way of thinking. But that just, that is just my offhand response. Yeah. It's just something you know, in the context of what we're discussing, like the way that we talk about Shar and how mm-hmm. he's just so naturally talented at everything that he does. And, you know, him being the end, you know, uh, I, I think it's fair to say if he's not the main antagonist, he's certainly a a, a substantial antagonist in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just in the context of what we were discussing with Shar and keeping in mind that the term Mary Sue is so often used, at least in where I've heard it, it's it's often used about hero characters and, uh, you know, just specifically women hero characters who are, who people tend to complain are just so overpowered because people feel like they're overcompensating for something, you know? Right. Yeah. Like I remember hearing that, uh, that criticism or insult really, just yeah. uh, in in reference to the hero from the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Uh, uh-huh. Shoot, I already forgot her name. What's Ray? Uh, That's her name. Yeah. Ray, I forgot her. <laughs> right. I kept right. I kept wanting to call her Daisy Ridley, but I think that's the actress. Uh, she Luke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just a character that basically has no flaws or weaknesses and is just great at everything that she does. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even necessarily think Ray is a Mary Sue, but that that's a a discussion for a whole different podcast. Yeah, I feel like we could if we really pull on that thread, we could end up doing a very long episode on that particular subject. But Yeah, totally. You know, I just felt like since we we touched on it a little bit. I was kind of curious to see uh, what your thoughts on it were. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Char comes across as a Mary Sue at all. Do you? Yeah, I don't think so either. Like, it didn't occur to me until you brought it up that, oh, I guess for certain people, people I'm inclined to hate, <laughs> they they would view it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, like I don't I don't think that's the case. Uh, like it, 
like now that I'm really thinking about it, thinking about it, I, I guess it's fair to say that as a character, he might not have necessarily earned all his talent, but at the same time, it's I don't necessarily feel like he's a character that's so overpowered that it's hard for me to believe that he's just that cunning and that conniving just naturally or, you know, by uh by whatever experiences he's had. You know? It's Yeah. It's not so over the top where it's just like wait, you're telling me that he jumped from a hundred stories and he landed gracefully like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, would it make you feel better if we had a story where we could watch Shar as a kid train a hundred hours in a simulator so he could make that shot in the gun tank? <laughs> uh, no, that sounds terrible. That sounds really terrible. <laughs> Spent his childhood it's, it's playing the next so many OVA. video games to perfect his it's aim. Next, <laughs> it's the next OVA or the next hidden volume of Gundam the Origin. It's yeah. <laughs> Gundam the Origin 5.5. <laughs> yeah. It's just 100 pages of yeah. Star playing a video game so he can hone his aim. Yeah. See? See? He trained for it. So now yeah. it's believable. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. All right. All did right. you have anything else, or did no? You I'm, I'm ready to. to yeah, I'm ready to dive into the chapter recaps. So, shall we do it, and we can uh, talk about anything that stands out as we go through it. You know, feel free to interrupt me. I'll probably interject my own points as I'm reading through my notes here. Yeah, sounds good. Do it to it. All right. So, again, each of the chapters, for whatever reason, is labeled as a section. So, here in Volume 5, we start with Section 1. So, Volume 5 picks up in the aftermath of the battle at Jabro. The Xeon forces have been destroyed, and Shar has escaped. Sela is pensive after reuniting with her brother briefly. The Federation licks its wounds. Fortunately, the damage to White Base was minimal, and revamps to the ship and to the Gundam have been completed so they can get ready for a counteroffensive. While Bright is talking with Amro, Mirai, Sela, and Kai, Amro tells them that Shar is back. When they faced off during the battle, Amro thought he recognized Shar's fighting style, and the red color scheme on his Zagok mobile suit was another indicator. At this point in the conversation, White Base gets some new additions to the crew to replace some of the people they've lost in the previous few battles. The new crew members are Slegger Law, Etur Borbashi, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> Michael Rodrigo, and Wong Chang. Gotta love the Asian. <laughs> uh, That's our people right there. We got a, so, we got a fist pump right now. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm pumping my fist for Wong Chang. If anything, these guys look like real soldiers. You know, they're not they're not like the teenage recruits that came out yeah. of the initial fighting. Slegger is sort of their ringleader and he promptly hits on Mirai only to be swiftly rebuffed while Kai witnesses this and he can't contain his laughter. <laughs> kind of a comical scene there. Another nice Kai moment. 
When Slugger sees Sayla, he says that she looks like she's got a man on her mind before he laughs and walks back into the ship to find his bunk. Sayla doesn't have a comeback, and she retires to her room as well. Now, it's at this point we begin the flashback. So up up to now, everything that we've read in the story has taken place in the year Universal Century 0079. Here we begin a lengthy flashback sequence. We are now in UC 0068, and we are in side three, which at the time was known as the Autonomous Republic of Munzo. We are about to witness the birth of the Principality of Xeon. On the day that Chairman Xeon Zoom Dakin is giving a big speech, he collapses in front of the assembly in the middle of his talk. We see Yang Shar and Sela along with their mother, Astraya. At this point in time, Shar's name was Kasval Rem Dakin and Sela's name was Artesia Som Dakin. Zion Dakin dies of mysterious causes, and it causes massive civil unrest in the colony because the masses suspect the Federation was responsible. The other two political leaders in Dakin's party are Jimbaral, who is Rambaral's father, and Degwin Zabi. There are some political machinations going on here. Degwin tells Estrella that Dakin died of a heart attack and offers his condolences and full support. After he leaves, however, Jimba tells her that he's convinced Degwin poisoned Dakin. With all the civil unrest mounting, Jimba's trusted son, Ramba, escorts Estrella and her children to the Ral homestead to prevent them from becoming the Zabi's political prisoners. During the trip, Ramba is assisted by Kisilia Zabi, the head of security in the colony. Later on, Kisilia meets with her other siblings, Girin, Sasro, and Dozel. Sasro, in particular, is incensed at her while Dozel tries to mediate. Sometime later, there's a state funeral for Dakin, with everyone in attendance. We see young Garma Zabi make eye contact with Kasval before flinching away. During the motorcade, as the procession of vehicles goes down the streets, there's an explosion in one of the Zabi cars, and Sasro is killed in very public fashion. Dozel survives, and now we know how he got those scars. All of the other Zabis, with the exception of Cassilia, appear to be shocked. And that's the end of chapter one. Mm. What were your thoughts on it, Albert? Um... Yeah, actually, up until you mentioned it, I had even forgotten that the introduction of the new crew members was in this first section. So mm-hmm. um, it does introduce a pretty interesting new dynamic uh, in in just the way that the characters are drawn. One, you mentioned they're adults. So they're one, they're adults, and two, they're like seasoned military people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the way that they're drawn there's a certain smugness and overconfidence to them, which just kind of teases at the idea that this could be a pretty problematic dynamic moving forward. You know, like Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're going to have too much respect for uh, this crew and what they've done. Uh, You know, this crew that it's made up of either teenagers or civilian conscripts, you know, (laughs) Um, so it'll, I don't know, it, it's, it's an, it's a new 
potential not threat but i guess drama conflict yeah drama it's a new potential for drama within uh within their i guess their side of the story right mhm um the other thing i was going to talk about was that part right at the beginning um that you mentioned where we we jump back in time and uh i forget the character's name but the the man who has the heart attack uh chairman taken yeah yeah Chairman Taken, when he has a heart attack and, uh, you know, afterwards, it it quickly becomes clear that the family, the kids, become this political football that's passed around between all the various uh, power centers within uh, their their government. That's, uh, mm-hmm. that's interesting to me because it reminds me of... And okay, so one, let me clarify. I've never read any of these, and uh, two, like I, I, I could be just making connections that might not be there. But um, I was gonna talk about like some of the old like samurai epics, uh, the historical epics that they they used to talk about with, you know, with the emperor and the shogunate and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there was a period of history where. You know, although the emperor was seen as, you know, uh, I don't even know if they were considered like the leader of the people, but um, there was a period of time where the various warlords or shogunate within uh, Japan's like social uh, hierarchy or whatever, where they would basically have wars with each other and uh to try to capture the shogun uh to capture the emperor and basically use this living person as a prop to indicate their uh their essentially their mandate from heaven to to rule uh the country or the nation right they would mm-hmm. use this the emperor as like almost as a puppet you know yeah so yeah. it just it just made me think back to that and I guess my first thought was I wondered if they were drawing on, you know, some of those historical stories from their background, you know, just, just, you know, seeing that all play out with these characters and how they were using assassinations to, uh, you know, remove the actual leader only so that they could really focus on the bloodline of uh, his kids as a means of gaining legitimacy for, you know, uh, how they could rule their their nation, you know? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's that's a theme that does come up again and again, that even those ki- even though these kids are on the run, the... the who are they? The Zabi? Yeah, the Zabis are the... Yeah. The people in power now. Yeah, the, the Zabis are still very concerned with them because they they either want to have control of them or if not that uh their their alternative is to completely wipe them off the face of the earth because um you know because that bloodline that name has legitimacy to it right yeah Dixon so himself was beloved by the people yeah so they're they're living with this constant 
threat of this family of this of this name mm-hmm. so I, I i thought that was pretty intriguing stuff yeah, yeah totally actually yeah. what you were saying about historical influence does make a lot of sense because yasuhiko when he was in his manga phase when being really productive doing comics i know that he did enjoy working on historical stories the unfortunate thing is that most of these stories are not available in english they haven't been translated in english and a couple of them that were translated back in the early 2000s manga boom they're way out of print so just you know extremely expensive but i know he's done stories where interestingly it seems like he's got a real interest in in European history cuz oh. yeah he's he's done stories uh about emperor nero he's done one that took place around the time period of Joan of Arc uh, I don't think it was actually about Joan of Arc but I think it was about somebody who was inspired by Joan of Arc he did a manga that was like a biography of Jesus I'm huh. really curious about that one yeah yeah um even some of his uh one of the anime that he did direct in the 80s Arion that's heavily influenced by Greek mythology. Huh. So yeah, I guess he's always just had a fascination with um yeah, history in general and and mythology. So like this kind of stuff definitely seems like it's up his sensibilities, you know? Like it it definitely seems like the kind of thing that the kind of story that he would enjoy telling with yeah, the yeah. layers of political intrigue and even even though it takes place in the future it it kind of does have that older feel because because of the stuff with you know the heirs or the bloodlines it, it doesn't that stuff doesn't really seem like things that we see too much today at least not in um western society <laughs> <laughs> i was going to say watch it's it's just a matter of time until, you know, with society that is true. like it's regressing by the day. That is true, it, man. It would not surprise me if we... Well, okay, I'm not going to say it wouldn't surprise me, but if a year from now someone invades the Vatican and they kidnap the Pope and basically use uh, keep them under house arrest so that they can claim that they have the right of God to rule a people's... I guess I wouldn't be that surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can. If that happens, we'll go back, listen to this episode, and laugh at how pathetically naive I was. Yeah. Or cry at how right we were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way, it's going to be a pretty extreme emotional reaction. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> uh, the other thing yeah. that kind of stands out in this chapter is how we're exposed to all of the the zombies i know that we've seen them previously in in the other volumes but now we're getting you know much more attention zeroed in on them and i don't know how much you remember about them from the previous volumes so i'm curious what your thoughts are on them after this chapter um i i just remember that there was a brief section that introduced each of these zombies uh 
And from what I remember, I, I don't know their names off the top of my head, but basically... I remember one, you called the old man the father. You called him like the King Koopa of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's basically what they are. <laughs> but uh, I remember the one... There's the one son who looked like he's probably the most conniving and uh, ruthless one of the bunch. Like, they even draw him in a way where he just has all these, like, harsh, sharp edges, and he just looks super menacing. Mm -hmm. um, I he's think you're kind thinking of Giren Zabi, the one who gives the speeches later on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like... In the previous volumes, when they were introducing them, I think they introduced them at the at the funeral for uh, mm -hmm. Garma. So mm -hmm. so they only gave like a really brief thing about them. But the thing about him was, yeah, that he was kind of uh, uh, the just the ruthless leader uh, of of the three of them. I think the daughter was like in charge of the intelligence network, mm -hmm. and she was kind of a, a sneak essentially. Yeah, and and the other son is I don't know if my assessment of his portrayal is accurate or or was accurate at the time, but he seemed like even though he was committed to the cause of Zabi, he was he he wasn't like a buffoon per se, but he <laughs> per se. <laughs> I mean, I think. I, I I don't think he was necessarily as okay. He wasn't as ruthless or as savvy as the other two, so there's that. But the other thing about him was he seemed to be the most sincere and maybe even I don't want to say kind, but he wasn't as bad or as evil as the other two. Mm -hmm. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then I'd say in this volume, now that we we get to see their interactions, I think it just confirms in my mind what they're what they're about, what they're like, you know. Um, yeah. What what was his name again? The 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 one that gives the speech. Urin. Urin. Yeah, like uh, when you read this volume, he's he's definitely. The one with the brains, uh, you know, he he's the power hungry one of of the of the group of the of the siblings, and mm -hmm. uh, the bigger guy again he he doesn't strike me as someone who's uh, really too focused on the uh, the the power plays within the government. He just he. He does he's committed to the to his father and he's committed to his family and he does what he does but he's still I guess marginally marginally like more likable than than the other two. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and I think the daughter of the siblings from what I remember she was she prominent in this one? In this in this volume? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She she helped in this in the first chapter, she helped Ramba take Astrea and the kids to the Raw home like when they were surrounded by a bunch of by a, by a mob. She and her Was she men, the one who was naked? Yeah, she did appear okay. naked in one of the later chapters. Okay. Yeah. 
that says a lot about me that that's what I remembered about her. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember what she did too much. I don't remember like what role she played, but she was totally naked. And I remember that. (laughs) Uh, I like how you, you admitted that. And and like earlier this episode, you were talking about how we, we enjoyed doing big brain looks and examinations of comics. <laughs> I'll admit it when I'm when I'm being totally pedestrian. I got no problems with that. <laughs> I'm I'm Popeye. I am what I am. <laughs> That's wonderful, man. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> yeah. What uh, did you have any thoughts on the on the kids as as they were portrayed within? this volume um i think i already had an image of them all in my mind already because i was uh, familiar with the anime i think hearing your assessment of them it it definitely brought a smile to my face just because it it's one of those things where yeah like in my mind when i read the comic i see the characterization and the characteristics of each of the characters pop out because, and part of it is because I'm already familiar with the characters. Not only have I watched the anime, but I've also read this before in the past. So I'm not sure if the characterizations come through solely because I have that preconception in my mind, but hearing you, someone who has experienced this story for the first time, to hear those characterizations come through it it tells me that the story is effective in communicating what it wants to communicate because i i think that's exactly yeah accurate what you picked up from them actually i wanted to add uh one more thing though like in all seriousness um regarding the daughter like there there is an aspect of her that i do remember outside of her naked body um (laughs) (laughs) which was uh from what I remember of her in the manga, it does feel like she's a person who's constantly trying to live up to something. Uh, she's constantly in the shadow of like the other two brothers and trying to prove herself by taking actions that... I, I guess you could say that she's overcompensating in her actions to prove that she can be as worthy or as good as her other, her brothers, you know? Do you think Um, that's solely because she's a woman? I think, I think that's an accurate, uh, yeah, I I think that's accurate, um, because, Again, if we look at just kind of the structure of their society, like I don't think that they're a society that is like super sexist or anything. I do think that they're in many ways more advanced, uh, you know, uh, in terms of their society uh, than we are currently, obviously, but. Mm-hmm. But I think since there's, since uh, 
Zabu. Zabu? The Zabis? Yeah, since the Zabis are a royal family, and, you know, they these are the three siblings, uh, you know, that there are certain aspects of sibling rivalry that are going to exist, and it, it doesn't help that she is the only daughter out of the three of them, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, technically, there's uh, five of them. There's Garma. There's the two brothers. There's her. Is there another daughter? So there's there's well, she's the only daughter, but there's yeah. Girin, Sasro, Dozel, Garma, and her, right? Yeah. So Sasro is the one that dies in at the end of this one. So we've we've actually never seen him in the story before. You're right. You're right. He is another brother. He's kind of the. He's also kind of another conniving type, but he's maybe. Nowhere near as good as the other one, the one giving yeah. the speech. Uh, yeah. Like he's 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 pretty power hungry as well, but I guess just nowhere near as talented. Yeah, there's that yeah. scene where he's upset at her and he straight up hits her. Yeah, yeah. And and then uh, later on when the bomb kills him during the motorcade procession. Yeah. Everybody looks back. Like, you get a shot of Degwin, the father, and Girin. They're in the same uh-huh. car. They look back, and they look completely surprised by the explosion. And then, uh, you know, Garma is a little kid at the time, and, and he's, like, shaking in his boots. But Cassilia is the one who who's, like, telling Garma, hey, if you're a man of Zabi... This this is just a trifle. Don't show any kind of emotion or whatever, you know. And it it was almost like I don't I don't think in this volume at least I don't think it's really explicitly spelled out. But did you get the sense that she was the one who killed her own brother? I don't think that that was a thought that occurred to me until I was listening to you just now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you know what. Okay, let let me let me correct this. Um, with all of the political machinations that were taking place in this period of time within the story, um, it did occur to me that his assassination was a pretty convenient uh, death because it allowed the zombies to take advantage of the situation where they could, you know. Where they could use gain this sympathy. as an opportunity. One, they could gain sympathy, but they could also make the case that the entire command structure was under attack, and it would, and and you know, and their, uh, I guess their family, their house is just as vulnerable as the rest of them. But because someone, because, um, you know. Uh, what's his name again? Uh, because the leader died. Uh, Dakin. Because Dakin died, and because one of the zombies died, they could essentially co-opt that feeling of, you know, of loss for the community, and they could rally their support to take over the situation. Because you know, when people are scared when they see their leaders dying, when it looks like there's chaos in the streets, 
um, a lot of the times that's when people are willing to give over that level of authority to people that might not necessarily be the people who should be wielding authority. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I did get the sense that his death might have been done, uh, by someone, uh, within their family, but I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if it was her. Although now that you mention it, she probably has more of a reason to do it to him mm-hmm. out of a out of a personal grievance. Uh, yeah. But but I'm not entirely sure if it's still like if the overall plan was still her because it wouldn't surprise me if it was the other brother if it was her working with the other brother with Garen. Yeah. Yeah. Because if they just if they knew that they had to sacrifice one of them in order to again gin up this sense of uh uh of grievance and this sense of uh unity w- within the population, then I could see him being cunning enough to sacrifice one of his own in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. how about this, man? If you were Cassilia, which one of them would you have killed? <laughs> uh, he's probably he was probably the one that was worth killing. Uh, if not him, then the other, the the big doofus brother, the, the <laughs> one. Who, I I'm bad at names, so like. If if every character had just really basic names, I I I'd be far better at this. But you know, yeah. uh, one thing about Gundam is that people have really creative names, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know the brother that I'm talking about, right? Yeah, Dozel. Yeah, he he's not. I don't think he's the least threatening of them. If if, if well, I guess at the time Garma's still alive, so. Yeah, he would have been the least threatening. <laughs> yeah, he would have been the least threatening, but if he they would have gotten killed... the most sympathy from his death too, because he was a little kid. That's true. That's true. Huh. Now that you mention it, Garma might. Yeah, Garma or Doz. Garma could have done gotten them something because he was a kid. Uh, but I guess it was. You could look at it this way. It's uh. They killed two birds with one stone in killing that one brother because he he definitely seemed like he was competent enough and that he was just as willing to be uh, power hungry and and ruthless as mm-hmm. the other three. But by removing him and using his death as a means to uh, rally the support of the people, uh, yeah. They they like remove two birds one, with one stone. Yeah, they remove one obstacle, which is him, and they also uh, use his death to gain support. So he he was probably the ideal one to kill. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yep. Okay. Shall we move on to chapter two? Let's do it. Okay.
So in chapter two, we continue straight from the end of the previous chapter with a wounded Dozel raging in the smoke, screaming for revenge. The next day, we see that the headlines in the newspapers, and I got to say here, you have to love an optimistic science fiction future where newspapers still exist. (laughs) (laughs) But we see that headlines in the newspapers imply that Jimbo Rawl was responsible for the assassination Jimba himself is outraged at this false accusation. He and Ramba are beginning to see just how dangerous it is for Astrea, Casval, and Artesia now that the political turmoil is reaching such brazen heights. Artesia, being a little child, is concerned about her cat Lucifer. <laughs> Funny choice of name, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's concerned about her cat Lucifer, and Ramba promises to bring her back her cat. Later that night, Ramba visits Crowley Hamon at the nightclub where she performs and they begin to formulate a plot using her connections to take his father and the Dakin heirs out of side three and hide them on Earth. We see Tachi moonlighting as a bouncer at the club. It's obvious he has a thing for Hamon, but it's one-sided. There's also a flashback within a flashback. Always kind of an iffy narrative prospect, but feels okay here, to me at least. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We see Astrea's memory of Dakin as he prepares his big speech late into the night and how he loves his family as well. The final scene of the chapter sees Cassilia make a personal visit to the Rawl homestead to have a meeting with young Casval. She tries to intimidate him verbally and even physically, but Casval, despite his youth, shows a fierceness and hatred for this for the zabis that foreshadows his adulthood she handcuffs him and threatens to arrest him but he boldly says that as dakin's heir he will be subservient to no one and he commands her to take the cuffs off him thoughts on chapter two albert oh i'm I'm processing what y'all said but uh yeah like it I think it's chapter two continues to do more of uh, what they were doing in uh, in chapter one by establishing or, or rather filling out what the political structure of the world looks like. And uh, Jimba Ral is another new character that we haven't seen before. We we know Ramba Ral from the previous volumes. We saw him. Uh, we we talked about how he. Although he's, you know, working for the antagonist of the story, he seemed like he was an honorable and noble adversary. Um, mm-hmm. So in the previous volume, he he was just a good soldier just trying to do his job. And we got to see his story play out with him ultimately sacrificing or, or, or yeah, I guess him dying not sacrificing himself but him dying in order to well him dying right (laughs) yeah yeah but by by building out the world a little more and by introducing jim baral we we see we learn a little bit more about baral in this situation and how you know they were another i guess competing house within uh within their society and you know in in this power grab by the zombies we just watched as 
they use these deaths to not only solidify their power, but to eliminate their enemies. And Jim Baral, in this case, was unfortunately that uh, an obstacle to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it just makes Ramba Ra's story that much sadder because one, you see him do some pretty good stuff in this scene as he tries to get uh, Dakin's family out of there. Like his mm-hmm. his their house was pretty committed to to the ruling family and again this is kind of not to keep going back to to game of thrones but <laughs> it's that whole thing where you you build up these characters that you love and they're doing the honorable and noble thing but it just never seems like the honorable and noble thing is uh mm-hmm. it, it just never seems like it serves any anyone right you know like yeah. the Often the case is the most honorable and noble people get it the worst when it's all over. Yeah, you know? that is true. And, and that's kind of what we see happening here. So Jim Baral, his, uh, he was loyal to, to Dakin. And as a result, their, I guess their naivete left them vulnerable so that when the zombies, okay, allegedly... Uh, commit these assassinations they uh i'm sure they were able to use those you know the media to portray the rawls as the perpetrators of this heinous crime something that they would never do because again like this like what happened in this chapter they they went above and beyond out of their way to to get the children out of there to protect them and I don't know. Um, tell me, was there an element to him grabbing the kids? It, it wasn't all altruistic, was it? Was there some part of it that was about... You think Jim Burrell was trying to take the kids for his own political maneuvering? I'm asking you if that if that's, if there's an interpretation of that where that makes sense. Or was your uh, reading of it that it was purely an altruistic uh, move on his part to protect these kids. I think it was almost purely altruistic. I don't think my reading of it is that Jim Burrell didn't want to try to take advantage of the kids for his own uh, personal consolidation of power. Yeah. But I, I do think that he had enough hatred for the Zavis that it gave him extra motivation to help the kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I do think Rambaral was genuine in what he was doing for the for the Dakin family. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, he even went out there in the midst of, uh, you know, riots and stuff to go get a little girl her cat back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, like, even, even something... That even that detail is just an indicator of just what a good guy he was, and mm-hmm. and then for us in the present reading it to know that he eventually dies by the hand of uh, White Base and uh, it's a you know pretty meaningless death in the grand scheme of things too. Yeah, it's meaningless, and 
I guess it just ratchets up the pathos of this character. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I do uh, got to say that uh, in this chapter and in the previous chapter, seeing little Sayla with her cat, the way that sh- she's drawn with the cat, it's just super cute, man. <laughs> that That is the kind of thing that, I don't know, I just I just dig that. Maybe maybe you can say I'm a sucker for cute drawings, but man, Yasuhiko <laughs> just really knew how to draw a cute looking kid with a yeah. kitten or a cat. Yeah. And oddly Let's, enough, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. What were go you ahead, gonna say? Go ahead. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I was gonna say, like thinking about it now, uh, we had. Oh, we had that conversation last week with uh, Justin on our podcast. Where we were talking about that movie Paris 13, where mm-hmm. he was talking about how one of the characters in that movie saves a cat, and he was using it as a figure of speech, but I took it literally. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he was saying that this character saves a cat so that the audience can get behind them and feel some sympathy for them. And yet, in this very <laughs> scene, we see Ramaral going out of his way to save a cat. So that literally, literally save a cat so that we can build up this sense of, isn't he such a good guy? He, he did this, he, he went out in the middle of a chaotic war zone to save a cat for a little girl. <laughs> yeah, that's a good guy. That's a hero. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's just the, apparent, that's the stock thing to do. Every time <laughs> something goes wrong, just have someone save a cat. <laughs> I heard Jeffrey Dahmer loved cats. Oof. <laughs> Dang. I don't know what to say to that. Uh, you don't have to say anything. You can just let it simmer. Okay, okay. We'll let, <laughs> we'll let the people meditate on that. <laughs> One of the other details in this chapter is the character Tachi. Did you, by chance, happen to read the back matter at the end of this volume uh i missed it what what did you learn there's there's an essay that yasuhiko himself wrote in response to a question he got as to why he he decided to do this past or flashback arc and he said that the character tachi was his inspiration and motivation to do something like this tachi i don't blame you if you don't remember him he's not a character that stands out but in I believe it was volume three, but in what in the vo, in the story where after Ramba dies and Hamon is gonna make one last attack on White Base for revenge, there's a moment or a scene where uh, this old ally of hers named Tachi shows up to give her some reinforcements, but all he has is this really old, outdated mobile suit, and then you know he joins her in the attack and it's essentially a suicide mission for him. He has no chance and he gets killed pretty ignominiously. (laughs) So yeah, he's not, he's not a really memorable character at all, but to hear Yaz tell the story in his uh, writing in the, at the end of the book, he says that that character made him think like, why would a character do that? Just throw away his life. So recklessly, it must've been for a woman. But obviously Hamon was already with somebody. She was with Ramba. So like there was this idea of, of 
Tachi being this guy who was just a sap, you know, this this sap who was so in love with a woman that didn't love him. And it was just I believe the kids call that a simp. A simp. Okay, there you go. <laughs> he was simping hard for her. He was simping super hard for her. <laughs> Man, it feels weird just to say a sentence like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's it just he's totally experiencing this unrequited love. But yeah. she's also this desirable woman who for whatever reason, doesn't have the heart to just straight up tell him, leave me alone, I'm not interested, et cetera, et cetera. She just yeah. kind of lets him hang around and, and she even treats him with, with kindness, even though she's out out there, you know, making out with Rambo and, and whatnot. But yeah. he, so this Tachi guy just can't help it. He, he just, he's into her and yeah. he can't stop himself. And it's almost like he's okay with, the knowledge that she loves another man, he's just gonna stick around as long as he can, <laughs> just this, because. Was this the guy who was uh, the bodyguard at the bar? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I remember him now. Um, it's interesting that you brought that up because, um, you know, listening to you talk about it, it does, it does seem like a trope that's pretty pretty romanticized in fiction quite a bit the idea that someone can love someone so much that even even if they don't have the chance to be with them that i guess there's a purity to that desire for this person so much that even if they can't be with them that they're willing to sacrifice everything for this person right yeah um I think that's what happened in A Tale of Two Cities. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow, you are uh, literate. You are well read. Uh, I didn't read it. I saw it on Wishbone on PBS. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you probably shouldn't have said that for this recording. Maybe I'll edit that out later to make you sound even smarter. No, leave it in. I I thought it was funny. Okay, okay. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't think that there was some comedic value to the idea that you thought I read books when instead I watched a portrayal of that story done where one of the main characters was played by a talking dog. <laughs> you watch TV? <laughs> quite a bit, quite a yeah. bit. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I wonder if, as a trope, it's one of those that people take issue with now um, because they look at that as the source for a lot of the problems that exist between, I guess, just men and women now. Um, just this idea that uh this idea that a lot of uh a young men have where it's where they feel like they have to you know perform uh in such a way or perform, where they feel like they have to perform these like great dramatic acts in order mm -hmm. to, you know, win the girl and uh, 
it's it's completely ignorant of the fact that that's not how people work and that these are completely works of fiction and you know you probably shouldn't be basing like your romantic interactions on on things like that like i i do think that like a like a white knight yeah exactly right like the idea of romance as an escape is appealing and you know we all go into it to whatever degree that we appreciate that genre and we enjoy it for the various tropes but there's things about it where i guess it's embedded itself into the psyche of a lot of people where they think that that's how they're supposed to behave you know mm-hmm. or 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 they be, do that and they kind of expect something in return or you know and when they don't get it they kind of lash out or or whatever throw, throw a hissy fit yeah exactly exactly it's yeah it's just interesting to think of that now that you've uh brought it up yeah that's a yeah. good point I, I didn't think of it that way either i guess i just kind of took it at face value uh, meaning in, in the sense of the romanticism of it all yeah like i even thinking about it in the context of the story like that character's arc tachi yeah i i can resonate with that like wanting to like someone that much and not being in a position where that personal reciprocate those those feelings but you know in the moment you feel like there's almost this sense of self-flagellation that's going on where you put yourself in this position where you can tell yourself if not others if not other people that hey i gave so much to this person and I asked for nothing in return, but really you're just kind of, <laughs> you know, you're just kind of painting yourself as this dramatic, tragic figure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a little it's delusional complex. when you, it's a little delusional when you, when you describe it that way. Yeah. Right. Like as a work of fiction, it's fine. But I, I just think in real life, that, I wouldn't want someone to be like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In real life, it's it's a lot more uh, worrisome meeting someone like that. It's a lot more annoying if I met someone like that in real life. <laughs> you mean you wouldn't be flattered if you had someone who loved you so much she would just hang out wherever you work all the time just so she could see you? I would totally be about that. What I was talking about was if I met someone and they were talking about if the if they're entire basis for their personality is i loved her so much and i gave her everything but i just want her to be happy (laughs) and i'm willing to live with it i would probably push them down the stairs (laughs) i have no desire to know that person got it thanks for the clarification man uh what did you think about the ending scene in this chapter when Cassilia confronts Casval? Oh, man. Can you refresh my memory a little? Just the scene where she 
intimidates him. Like they have this private conversation and, and she intimidates him verbally and then tries to scare him by putting the handcuffs on him, right? And she says oh, she can okay, arrest okay. him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a pretty another um key moment in in uh, okay, I don't like a key moment in the development of Shar's character, right? Okay, like you yeah. see that even when he was a kid, he was he had this certain something to his personality because that doesn't seem like something a normal kid would have said. Exactly, exactly. You could tell that even as a kid, he had an, an innate astuteness and awareness of his situation, and he had a brashness that allowed him to talk to an adult in that mm-hmm. way right mm-hmm. so it's 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 a pretty cool moment and again you know to go back to the earlier discussion maybe there's someone who looks at that as a mary sue moment where they're like that's i find it hard to believe that a real kid would act like that but <laughs> for me it worked it's it's a moment it's it it's a, a again it's a key moment that shows that there was always something about this kid that was dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. understood how the world worked and that understood how to deal under pressure. So it was fitting and it's it definitely is a moment that sticks out in your mind as it builds up Shar, uh, I guess the mythology of Shar, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, yeah. Yeah, fully agree. We can move on to chapter three. Let's go. So Cassilia and Girin have a conversation and she tells him to be wary of young Casval. She wants to exile the boy, but Girin brushes her off, reminding her that the eyes of the world are watching them. Meanwhile, Estrella, Casval, and Artesia are safely moved to the Dakin residence where we encounter Dakin's legal wife, Rose Lucia. She harbors ill will and much resentment against Estrella. Her idea of mercy is to lock Estrella up in a tower and give her one last night with the children. Hamon has infiltrated the Dakin residence and tells Ramba what's going on. Ramba realizes that if they're going to get the children to Earth along with his father, they'll have to move quickly. That night is particularly poignant as it's Astrea's last night with her children. Casval seems to understand the dire situation they're in, while Astrea gives Artesia the kind of comfort that befits a small, innocent child. The next morning, Hamon disguised as a Federation officer, arrives at the Dakin residence in an early model gun tank and commands them to hand over the children. The kids wave goodbye to their mother, who is still in the tower, and it is a tearful parting. Soon enough, the Federation realizes that there's a rogue gun tank performing unauthorized movements through the city, and they send some of their forces to retrieve it. The chapter ends with Casval getting into the gunner seat and firing a shot, to destroy an enemy gun tank. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So again, another end of chapter moment where we see little Shar doing something that you don't expect a normal little kid to be able to do. Yeah. 
I do think that a lot of this volume is there were a lot of little moments like that where taking into consideration what you mentioned earlier about how all this material in this volume was new material that was added after the fact mm-hmm. it it works you know because um as as you know as a story that's basically an origin story for Shar and Sela mm-hmm. it it fills in all of the details that were left out of the anime so that it builds up what is foundational to both of these characters and again it takes me back to the idea that I'm curious what it would have been like to have watched this without these elements included in in the story that I was experiencing for the first time. And that actually makes me think of another question to ask you. Yeah, sure. But how do you think it would have worked if you read the flashback scene before reading volume one? I think it would have spoiled a lot of stuff, honestly, because mm-hmm. um, even without volume one, all of the surprises that were built into the story as as we were reading it, the the revelation that Sela and Shar know each other and the mystery of it all. Once you read this, it all goes out the window. Kind of like knowing that Anakin is Darth Vader. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. I think that's that's an apt comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I do think that putting it here, or not Anakin is Darth. I I think I meant that that uh, Darth Vader is Luke's father. That's what I meant. Oh, okay, okay. And just seeing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I thought about Star Wars in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do yeah, like this... that it, this the past arc, the flashback stuff is in the middle, or after we've already read a few chapters of the present day story, so to speak. Yeah, because yeah. now it 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 really does feel like it's filling in a backstory that we already had been exposed to. You know, like we already like I don't think starting with like if we had started with the flashback material. At, as the beginning of the story, I don't think it would have been as impactful because the reason why it's so impactful here is because we already have a, a decent understanding of what's going on. Like we already yeah. know what Shar is like as an adult. We know what Sail yeah. is like as an adult. We already have been exposed to uh, the the different members of the Zabi family, and we know that there's this war going on, and we know that the Zabis are in power, but you know, all the stuff as to why that happened was kind of left up to yeah. uh, little references here and there. Like there was, I don't even know if you caught these little mentions, but in a previous volume, somebody, they talked about the Battle of Loom at, at the outbreak of the One Year War, which is the war that they're in the midst of. So, you know, you're we're already, we've already had all these references to things. So even... If you don't know what they are when you read those uh, earlier volumes, it, it didn't really matter because now you're getting all those blanks filled in. But yeah. 
I think if you had read this first, then it wouldn't have made much of an impact because you didn't have any blanks to be filled in at all. You know, you're just like seeing stuff that you're just seeing plot happen basically. And now you're seeing plot, but there's more meaning and depth behind it. Yeah. Um, yeah, as uh, someone who watches a lot of modern, or not even modern, but semi-modern cartoons, re- semi-recent cartoons, um, I'm a fan of a lot of cartoons that have long-form storytelling. And one of the elements of those types of shows is that there's usually some element of mystery to it where... In the early seasons, they sprinkle just enough information for you to get the sense that there is something going on behind the scenes, but they don't full, fully tell you. And and maybe this is a byproduct of the era of television that we're in where we binge watch a lot of stuff, but it's that sense where... Once you watch enough episodes of the show, once you binge watch entire chunks of this show, you get that sense of satisfaction when you get to this one particular episode that acts as a tipping point where all of the secrets and mysteries of the show are revealed to you. And you can it's it's the fun of pouring over all of the details of the show and looking over all the fan theories that you were, you know, looking into as you were watching the show, as you were trying to figure out what was going on. Wait, you care about fan theories, Albert? Uh... That surprises me. I thought you disdained the fans. I do disdain the fans. Uh, But I do think... On particular shows, I do enjoy. I don't know. There's there's a part of me that gets swept up in 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 the fandom of it all. I, I, oh, okay. I'm not I'm not gonna say I'm completely above it. You know. Uh, okay. Oh, let me put it this way: the purest form of it is something that, on the face of it, I can. I, I've imbibed in as well, but when you put it in the context of everything that we've seen in Marvel movies and you look at it from the perspective of the most obnoxious kinds of fans that we have to deal with, that we have to coexist with, uh-huh. then I am not interested in that at all. And if anything... I flick my boogers at them because <laughs> I'm I just want them to shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. flicking a booger at somebody would be a good way to get someone to shut up. It, it's something that's so unexpected. I, I think people just wouldn't know how to respond to that. Yeah. But Yeah, so like the, what I'm thinking of is uh something like Steven Universe where when that show was going on as it was coming out, I do remember there was a period of time where I would have to wait 
for a new season for more information to come out, right? So once you get to the end of a season and you're at the part where there's a cliffhanger, there's a part of you that's jonesing for more and you're just kind of, yeah, you're just kind of looking for answers. And sometimes when you don't have those answers available because the show is still a year away from releasing the next season or whatever. Um, you turn to fan fiction. I don't turn to fan fiction, <laughs> but there's a part of me that I'll, I'll go to YouTube and I'll look up what people have to say and uh-huh. you know, what people think. And I'll, I'll, I'll do a speed run of it, you know, okay. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll look at the personalities. I'll look at the individuals, and if if they have a level-headed approach to it, something that I can get behind, sure, I'll I'll entertain what they have to say. But I've also come across channels where I've listened to what they had to say, and and I think in light of what actually happened in the show, uh. It just made me, yeah. It 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 made me disdainful of them. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I I I actively made it a point not to go back to those channels after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So understandable. I I don't know. Fandom is it's it's complicated because on the one hand you want to be able to connect with other people on this thing that you enjoy, but on the other hand. People just ruin everything. <laughs> yeah, that they do. You know? <laughs> that they do, my man. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about this chapter a little more. Um, so up to this point, we 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 get uh, Char and Sela's mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, in the pre- previous chapters of this, you... you I don't know about you, but I wasn't really thinking too much about it until this particular chapter because I just assumed that the relationship that she had with Dakin, 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 I just assumed that it was a normal up and up relationship. But then they introduce his actual wife. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and she's. There's no nice way to put it, but she's just kind of a uh, kind of a crazy hag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe there wasn't a nice way to put it, but I didn't sure have there to was put a it nice in the absolute meanest way. <laughs> but that's kind, of, but that's how they drew her, you know. Like she just looks kind of disheveled and uh, insane. Uh, maybe not insane, but yeah, she's well, definitely maybe. not as attractive as their mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we learn a, a little bit about their backstories, and I, I think it's fair to say that she's their their mother is yeah, a concubine, right, or something something like that. Yeah, I guess you could say it like that, or just um. The mistress that bore him children. Okay. <laughs> I don't I'm know. If, I don't. I'm I don't just... know if she's technically actually a concubine in terms of 
legal standing or if she's just the woman that he had fill out her concubine documents she didn't get certified as a concubine (laughs) a professional hewer yeah that 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 i'm not sure of you might have to go check the gundam wikipedia to find out for sure okay okay but yeah like what we learned is this woman the his actual wife dakin's actual wife is super resentful and maybe she has a right to be resentful i I think that's fair to say uh but she's resentful towards uh char and sailor's mother because in her in her perspective from her perspective uh the only reason that dakin is with this woman is because this woman was able to bear him children so mm-hmm. that's that's an interesting detail that we never got. I don't know. Did they put that in the anime? No. No, this is new too. Okay. Okay. So that's I'm I'm curious to see what that detail adds. Uh, I don't know if there's any more to it or if 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 it has run its course to its full effect in this volume. I think it has run its course in this volume because I I can't remember which chapter it is, but isn't isn't there a mention later on? Well, for one thing, when uh, Astrea finally does die, I don't even think Rose Lucia uh, does anything or shows up again. I can't remember if. Did they say that she dies? I, yeah, I want to. I want to say I remember a line yeah. of dialogue that implied that she she died also. So yeah, yeah. I, I didn't like jot down the page number, so I couldn't like go straight to the reference. But that's yeah, that's the that's I what I remember. That, yeah. I think I remember reading that too. So she was already they, in kind of ill health by the time we get to see her. Yeah. What What's the mother's name again? Astrea. Yeah. So. Her deal for Astreo was that she would keep Astreo locked up in this, you know, a tower. tower for for forever, and that the kids would be. I assume that she would just take the kids as her own to raise, you know, so that they can mm-hmm. keep up the appearances that this is a singular family unit or whatever. But yeah, there's also, again, just this sense of resentment from her that she's going to take these kids and she probably would have been a mean stepmother. Yeah, she would have been a mean stepmother. And, you know, she's going to take the kids from their actual mother just to spite her. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Because she can't deal with her emotional pain of having her husband leave her for somebody else because Mm -hmm. they can bear her bear them children in because they're more attractive. <laughs> yeah. No getting around that fact. There there is no getting they they drew her in a way she she has a lot of hag features is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> she is mightily resemblant of a hag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you play Witcher three, you you'll see the resemblance. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, let's see. In terms of other details uh, that they introduce in this chapter that I, uh, you know, made particular note of, there's also the scene where, um, you know, where uh, they're they're making the escape where Rambo Rawl is taking the kids and they they're just gonna go off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, get off planet. And there's this one scene where I think it is that is is that Hamon? Yeah, the woman. Yeah, she's yeah. the one in the, in the gun tank disguised yeah, as an officer. Yeah, there's this scene where she makes a deal. Apparently, she bribed some, uh, you know, some officers to steal this uh, tank unit and to steal uh, stow the kids away uh, to the port where they can escape. But there's this moment where once they find out that the stakes are pretty high, the the people that she bribed, they. They turn on her pretty quickly by either asking for more money and when, you know, the money isn't available, they begin to, you know, proposition her. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, by by saying that there are other ways that she can pay for their release and she, being a woman of dignity... And uh, not being someone who's going to take that kind of crap. She just straight up whoops on these guys. You know? She needs that one dude right in, right in the nuts. And yeah. it looks pretty painful. Right. Yep. It's a, it's a hard knee right to the testiculars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, that I thought that was a... Uh, it was a, a good characterization. It is, it is. And even though these these guys that she bribed di didn't do much, the the few panels that they were in where they were just utter sleaze bags, I hated them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fun to have have these bad characters that are fun to hate. I think so. I think so. I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but it reminds me of this uh, video I was watching on uh, on YouTube for uh, this channel I follow called Wisecrack, where the guy was talking about documentaries and why why are we like obsessed with true crime and why are we obsessed with these documentaries uh, that are about um, people like Elizabeth Holmes or uh, Martin Scarelli or that guy who did the Fire Festival uh, like yeah. why John why Rool? No, no, the I think his name is like Billy Freeland or something like that. Uh okay, but okay. but these characters that are involved in these fraudulent crimes, why why do we as a society get this collective boner watching them and just <laughs> all agreeing how much we hate them? And one of their theories was that <laughs> was that um you know it, in a world where everything is so polarized, where we're all just kind of stuck in our silos and the other person is the enemy and we're just kind of in this death grip with each other, there is something cathartic about having this one person that everyone can hate. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know? a good point, man. 
That's a good point. Because, <laughs> yeah, because there's something to just seeing someone who's just irredeemably bad from all perspectives without, you know, putting, without needing nuance or, or anything like that and just being able to look at them and just being able to seethe at them <laughs> in your <Yeah>. blood. <laughs> that is a good point, man. I haven't thought about that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You have brought the fire of enlightenment to my eyes. Nice. Nice. I uh, We learned something tonight. We, we, we pondered certain ideas mm-hmm. beyond what was immediately presented to us in this manga. Mm-hmm. That is true, man. I dig that. You want to move on to the next chapter? Yeah. Chapter four. Casval continues firing accurate shots at the Federation gun tanks. And eventually, Artesia begs him to stop because she feels bad for them. Eventually, what have you done? Yeah. <laughs> it's a what have you done moment. Eventually, Hamon and the kids and Lucifer escape their gun tank in the chaos. Dozel heads to the Federation command center and tells them to stop attacking or else Dakin's heirs could be harmed or killed. However, while he's intimidating the Federation leaders, Giran calls him and tells him to allow the Federation to destroy the rogue gun tank. Giran is fine if the children are killed. Fortunately, Hamon and the kids are picked up by Ramba and swiftly make their way to the cargo terminal at the docking bay. There, they are... Huh? Before you complete your thought, Mm -hmm. so they save the kids, but they also save Lucifer too, right? Yeah, the cat. Okay, good. Good to hear. I'm glad they saved Lucifer. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Go ahead. There... In the docking bay, they are packed into a shipping container with Jimbaral, while Tachi arranges for them to be loaded onto a transport. There's some levity as Tachi nearly bungles it, but somehow he gets it done while Ramba and Hamon can barely watch. Jimba, Casval, Artesia, and Lucifer make it <laughs> onto a transport, and for the first time, the children are in space. There's a sense of wonder as they experience zero gravity, see their colony cylinder from the outside, and see the sun, moon, and earth. So, yeah, I, I like the way this chapter ended, too. There's something like a sense of the grandness of space and the way that that Yasuhiko draws and colors it. It's quite majestic, and there's something beautiful about it. It, it gave me Planetes vibes. Yeah, yeah, I I totally get that too. Like just the way that they draw it, how small they are in in the vast black vacuum of space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, to go back to to what we were joking about earlier, there is something pretty peculiar about the idea that this cat's name is Lucifer. Yeah, <laughs> it's a funny name for a cat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if something was lost in translation there or or what, but I I remember as I was reading this manga, every time I came across it, there's a there's a split second in my brain where 
I glitch out and I have to ask myself, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling that Yasuhiko was familiar with the name. He did do a manga about Jesus, so I imagine he probably did some research into the Bible to do that. (laughs) So, you know. What if he did research, but he just never came across Lucifer? (laughs) (laughs) And that's a heck of a coincidence, man. Yeah, yeah. He found a way to avoid it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I was in high school, I knew a girl whose parents named her Jezebel. Oh. Huh. Huh. That's... Yeah, it's it's not too outlandish to expect a cat named Lucifer. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, she was a person, a human. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I wonder if she was aware of the the subtext of that or not subtext but the context of uh, or the meaning of that name. Yeah, I was afraid to ask her. I never mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> I think even back then I I knew that it would be kind of rude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that you're named after a famous whore? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh yeah, I'm looking at this scene here and there's it's it's a pretty action-packed chapter where it goes from them it goes from Char, you know, finding out that he's just a killer tank captain at the age of, you know, 9 or something. Yeah. <laughs> just straight up mowing these guys down and then um you know, it goes from that to uh, uh, Hamon and the kids going on the run. And it's a pretty fun, action-packed chapter. There's there's this one panel here where... Uh, what page what's are you his name? looking at? Page 173, where uh, one, of the, one of the zombies, I, I forget his name. Oh, uh, yeah, Dozel. Dozel, yeah, Dozel. He's like yelling at the men, and I couldn't tell what was happening to his face on on in this uh, page, but he's he's yelling at them. You know, he's pretty enraged, and then all of a sudden, they're just like spurts of blood shooting out of his face. It took me a second to process what it was that I was watching, but I thought he was getting shot in the face. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I thought but he was dead for a second there. Oh, man, that's intense. Yeah. But you, you understand what was happening, though, right? After you looked at it? Yeah, Thought yeah, about yeah. it? Yeah. He has stitches, and he was just so enraged that he popped all his stitches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a pretty funny page. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There was something yeah. uh, sinister on the next page, too, when you see him take the phone call with Garen. And yeah. Garen, he's, you know, dressed in a in this suit, sitting in an office, enjoying a glass of wine. And he's like, yeah, it's all right if the kids die. <laughs> Just like the, he's like, like a Bond villain or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, uh, yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier, where he's just a guy that just projects menace in, in almost all aspects of his being. Just... The way that they draw him, the way that he holds himself, the way that he 
projects himself to the world. There's there's just something oily and sleazy and untrustworthy about him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and even Dozel, once he gets the news, there's I don't know if I'm reading that right, but I, I presume that there's a hesitancy on his part. He's shocked by it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. on, on page 175, he's just kind of standing there going, huh? Yeah. 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 So it's an, I, I think, again, that ties into the indicator that of the zombies, he might not be as bad as the other ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, another question I'd have to ask since we're on the subject like we see the dad uh zabi in this and we know that there's there's obviously as the patriarch of the family he's the one calling the shots right mhm but do you get the sense that he's truly as bad as we think he is or is there more to it there that is a good question i don't know if i should say anything because i don't okay. want to spoil anything for you see but that's I, the I thing think, it's yeah your it's observations so far are, are on on track i think you're picking up what you're supposed to pick up is what i'll say okay because yeah i was gonna say it's it's a little harder asking you because you've read it already so you're privy to yeah to knowledge that so so me asking something like that is not something that's immediately easier for you to ponder over because you have the answers <laughs> i think you're thinking on the right track though because cuz like your question shows me that you're noticing that degwin zabi the the old man father he he shows up, but he doesn't really have too many scenes where he talks yeah. and gives orders and stuff. Like yeah. we're constantly seeing Garen and Cassilia give the orders and and make set plans in motion and and execute yeah. them and and stuff. So, um, you know, you can read into that what you will. What we do know from uh, seeing the flashback is that Degwin, Zabi, and Jimba Ral were basically like the two political leaders. Uh, beneath Dakun and and it makes sense that in Dakun's death in the power vacuum like one of them would most likely yeah. be the logical person to to rise up yeah yeah and I was gonna say even though uh even even though what's his name again Dakun Dakun Dak uh, no or, the Dakun Dakun yeah. yeah, even though Degwin is in a role of prominence within their structure, uh, like the one image that jumps out at me of him is the scene after Garma dies where he's just, mm. uh, you know, in pain at the death of one of his children. That's That's probably the most lasting image that I have of this character as of right now, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. It, I, I guess it doesn't 
vibe with what I feel like I should know of him or what I expect of him as as this ruthless leader or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it it causes me to pause and ask questions about what it is that I feel like I actually should be expecting from this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah no th- yeah that that's that's good man that now now you got to keep reading to find out <laughs> yeah yeah stay tuned true believer <laughs> yeah and it does this chapter does end on a pretty nice note though uh it's like you said like most most of the the man- most of this volume so far has been I don't know. I, I, most of it has taken place within the city uh, on on mm-hmm. on terra firma, you know. And what we well technically s- not terra firma because they're in a space colony. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, but I, I don't know, know what the be. yeah. I don't know what the exact term for it is, but there it exists within yeah uh, the they're confines of this colony. colony. Yeah. And what we've seen for the most part up to this point in this chapter is just the destruction from uh the the conflict and the infighting that's been going on right Mm -hmm. and once you get to the end it slows down the pace of it slows down as we watch this cargo vessel slowly uh leave the colony and enter space and we just see all these scenes of just again just how small they are compared to the vastness of it all and it's a pretty stark contrast mm-hmm. that that puts a puts a period on this series of events you know yeah. uh, moving to the next chapter we'll see kind of we'll we'll, we'll see what happens to them but as far as this specific sequence of events, this is the end of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their time, their the part of their lives that they spend exactly. on that colony is over. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's move on to the next chapter then. So chapter five, a few years have passed, and we see that Casval, Artesia, and Lucifer. <laughs> are living under the care of Don Tibolo Mass as his adopted children in his castle in Andalusia, Spain. They are now going by the names Edward Mass and Sela Mass. There are a lot of refugees nearby, and Sela often volunteers to help. It's implied that the influx of refugees in town is due to overpopulation issues, Earth's dwindling resources, and the Federation's decision to focus on space colonization and force emigration. We see that Jimba has been teaching Edward about Dakin's new type philosophies and drilling him with his father's political views. We also learn that Munzo, the colony that they left, is about to rename itself Zeon, and Jimba gets extremely passionate about getting revenge on the Zabis. Later on, we learn through a conversation between Jimba and Don Tibolo that Jimba is so committed 
to overthrowing the zombies that he's made a plot involving Anaheim Electronics, a major military industrial conglomerate, to procure weapons for an attack. It seems the Zobbies have learned of Jimba's intentions and they send a bunch of assassins that night. In the ensuing battle, Don Tibolo is seriously injured and Jimba is killed. Edward and Sela try to hide in the castle. Someone in medieval armor finds the kids, but Edward has a sword of his own and manages to stab the enemy in the face. And that is how the chapter ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the time skip here is something that makes sense from a storytelling perspective. Like it, we get a little bit of exposition from their new adoptive father as to what the status quo is, and I also like the idea of seeing Sela as a volunteer um, in the refugee camp. Like when we first saw her at the beginning of the story. She was already, uh, you know, she clearly had some medical experience and was already involved in helping the people get off uh, that colony at the beginning of First Gundam, uh, of, of the first volume of the story. So it, it's kind of cool to see, like, where that part of her personality developed. You know, it was there from when she was a kid. Yeah, yeah. I also thought it was interesting how... The, there's some allusions to why there are these refugees here in Spain and and like the reasons that are given do kind of give off this vibe that the Federation ain't this perfect entity that does everything right but perhaps some of the choices or decisions that they've made with their authority have actually uh, caused people hardship yeah, yeah. It's in a situation where things aren't quite as black and white. It's it's another gradation of complexity that's put in, right? Because mm-hmm. I think it's very fair to look at this and go and and say that the zombies are clearly evil here because they're the ones trying to beat the protagonist of the story. They're, they're the ones going after Amuro. They're going, the ones that are going after white base, but mm-hmm. you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, the Federation has, again, they're not, they're not nowhere near as, pure as we may presume them to be and um well i'll I'll just say it, but there there's a part later where they talk about their grievances towards the federation and you know they mention that these people born on you know just just by the very virtue of where they're born uh, you know, being on on Earth, they presume that they're entitled to uh, resources just mm-hmm. because. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, is there any wonder that the what are they called? Space space noids. Yeah, space noids would have 
this sense of uh uh what's the word uh resentment towards them yeah 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 it's all this it's this political melting pot of issues that makes it pretty believable why thousands and thousands of people would rally around the zombies yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) did you just have a uh did it just make you think about real life (laughs) i I think that's fair (laughs) i was gonna say yeah these begrieved uh uh um people that live out who have uh, uh, grievances towards the, the elites. elites. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> That's not something we've experienced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's crazy. Like Yasuhiko was doing this story probably, you know, in the mid two thousands. It's like he saw the future, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a testament to how well he understood human nature, mm-hmm. which was maybe at that point in time, uh, we we weren't in a position to see what the culmination of years and years of that sort of grievance could lead up to, but he clearly saw it, you know. Yeah. 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 There's also that little element of uh, Jimba talking about how he wanted to essentially start his own revolution to overthrow the Zabis. And he has his connection with Anaheim Electronics, the military industrial conglomerate. Yeah. Like that, that's another thing I, I think is pretty interesting because. Anaheim Electronics is a company that shows up in later Gundam stories. And essentially, I don't think this is really a spoiler, but because, you know, you can imagine what other Gundams are about. They're also about war and there's more fighting and more mobile suits. And Anaheim Electronics continually becomes more and more prominent and powerful because they're the ones who manufacture a lot of the high-end weapons that are used by the different sides of the war you know so it's like an interesting uh name drop for longtime gundam fans uh uh i do i do think that that element of the story was a pretty pretty interesting one to throw into the mix as well because when I was reading about uh, Jim Baral and uh, his entire situation, it did make me think of other historical moments. I, like the one thought that I had was um, it made me think of the Shah of Iran <laughs> for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Well, mm-hmm. not, not whatever reason there's a relevancy to it, but yeah, give us a history lesson, man. I, w- I want to hear the story. I don't know. Yeah. You're going, I don't know where you're going with it, but I, I'm on the edge of my seat here. Yeah, it it just well, okay, I guess it made me think of the Shah of Iran because it's probably one of the most prominent examples that I can think of of uh leaders in exile 
mm-hmm. you know, these people who were great powers in whatever nation that they were uh, ruling. And in this case, the Shah was the ruler of Iran. He had set himself up as, I, I guess for the better lack of a word, their king, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say in the late 70s, early 80s, I forget specifically which what the, what the dates were, but um, we had the Iranian uprising, um, you know, from the, the Ayatollah Khomeini and, uh, you know, where various elements within society were, weren't happy with how the government was treating them. And as a result, they formed an alliance to overthrow that government. And because uh, they were willing to make um, these alliances with, questionable factions within their society what ended up happening was that the worst not well not the worst but the more aggressive factions ended up taking advantage of the situation and ruling the country but anyways it just made me think of what happened to the shah who Mm -hmm. you know ended up fleeing iran and I, I forget exactly what happened to him, but I, I think I think he came to America at some point because he ended up having cancer or something like that. And I I believe Jimmy Carter took him in because he felt an obligation to the Shah of Iran because he was a uh, they were a former ally in that region. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think I think when uh, Jimmy Carter gave him, uh, what's the word, uh, like asylum or, or mm-hmm. something, you know, whatever form of asylum he gave him, I think that's what ended up leading to that Iran-Contra crisis where they ended up taking a whole bunch of hostages. Mm. But anyways, that's kind of a ranty. But um, it, it just made me think of that because it, it made me think of what it must have been like for this man who once ruled a nation to be on the outs and just living in exile and to be in this position where day in, day out, they just fantasize about how they used to be the king and they fantasize mm-hmm. about something coming back, you know. And, yeah. and that's exactly what we saw with Jim Baral. He, he he just ends up sitting here, um, you know, plotting revenge. And he really comes across as he's a feeble a, old man. Yeah, a feeble <laughs> old man who still is ranting and raving about these just angry thoughts and and wanting to get revenge when yeah. it really doesn't seem like that's possible. Yeah, at this point, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, another example that I just thought of was, it reminds me of um, Saddam Hussein, actually. <laughs> when mm. when they when they captured him uh, a while back, uh, when they captured him and they, they were holding him in prison, there were stories about how he would talk to the guards. And, you know, he was 
probably no, he was definitely in the worst position that he could have possibly been in. Yeah. But but there are stories about how he would talk to the guards and how he he was talking to them using terms where he would yeah, where he would talk to them like he was for sure just going to be returned back to power, you know? Saying things like, <laughs> Oh, you should come visit my palace or like you know, hey, like I'll do a favor for you at some point, you know, just you know, just you watch once once they reinstall me as king and it's just it's pretty pathetic. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. there's no real other word for it and, and seeing Jim Baral in this scene like at one point when he talks to uh what's what's the guy's name? The Don Don Tella yeah. Tibolo. Tibolo. I, I don't know if that's the proper pronunciation, but that's yeah. just how I've been saying it. He he talks about how he's you know, when we mentioned earlier that Jim Baral's uh treatment of these kids was you know, semi altruistic. Like I feel like in this chapter all that sort of goes out the window cuz at this point he wants he's revenge. willing yeah, he's willing to sacrifice these kids to get back at uh, the zombies, mm-hmm. you know? And at that point, Don, the Don, I'm, I'm just going to refer to him as Don, the Don, but yeah. he, he the ends Donald. up, the Donald, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he ends up, at this point, he's adopted the kids and he sees them as his own kids and he has a genuine love for them and mm-hmm. he just rebuffs this old man and says you know if if that's your plan then you can leave my house cuz i'm not going to send my kids off to to die for this and that's when the facade of it all breaks down and uh jim Baral is just he just you know completely admits to how pathetic this whole thing is because he just wants to be able to fantasize about the day that he'll get revenge on them. And he's even, he even, he even like weeps to the Don by saying, can't I have that? Can't I just at least have the fantasy of this revenge? It's, he was really pathetic looking in that moment. Super yeah. Pathetic. Yeah. He was a, he was essentially a broken man. Like even the way that he's drawn, if you yeah. compare the way he's drawn in this chapter to when we first saw him in the first chapter, it's pretty different. He like, looks he clearly like he looks, could have been homeless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's it's like how it's like how much has he aged in this time? You know, only a few years have passed, but it looks yeah. like he's aged. It a was decade. three years. Yeah, only three years had passed since they had fled, and this guy just looks he looks haggard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so moving on to chapter six it continues uh the battle from the end of chapter five against all odds somehow edward beats the assassin in the armor who then falls to his death in the aftermath of the attack Don Tibolo is badly injured but has received medical attention and is in recovery. Shu Yashima, who owns the Yashima Company, 
is a friend of Tibolo and visits him. His daughter Mirai accompanies him. Shu Yashima offers the Don a plan to move him and the children back into space to the Texas colony inside five. Shu's reasoning is that they would be safer from an attack by the zombies if they lived closer to side three. Also, because the Yashima company owns Texas, the Don and the kids could still live comfortable lives. Don Tubolo accepts this generous offer. Meanwhile, back in Munzo, on side three, we see a pompous display of pageantry as the Zabis minus Dozel have a parade and a fancy state banquet with some other dignitaries. Ramba visits Hamon at the nightclub and blows off steam by getting into a bar fight. Dozel, who doesn't care for obnoxious displays of politics, drops by the club and tries to recruit Ramba for a special project. Curious, Ramba and Hamon accompany Dozel to see what it's all about, and they witness the testing of a new machine called a mobile worker, which is essentially a prototype mobile suit. And as a side note, we also see that the men who would eventually become known as the Black Tri-Stars are the test pilots. So, yeah, another chapter doesn't have a whole lot of action other than the little test piloting scene at the end. But uh, we we do get a little cameo from Mirai as a teenager visiting the Don's home. Yeah, what were your thoughts on this chapter? Like, did you think it was weird that little Char beat this assassin who, by the way, happened to be wearing knight armor <laughs> medieval armor um i didn't think it was weird was that melodramatic oh geez Um. no uh, i think i was caught up in the fun or like you know in the drama of it all where mm-hmm. i yeah i i wouldn't say that i was taken out of the scene i i you know i i enjoyed it for what it was um it was it was a fun action battle. Uh, I guess the one thing that was melodramatic is the idea that the guy was in a suit of armor. That that yeah. I mean, it was cool to look at, but there was something about that where I did ponder the decision. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. when did that assassin have time to uh, put that on? He's not a very stealthy assassin if he's clunking around in a giant suit of metal armor. Yeah. <laughs> It's not even a mobile suit. It's like literally knight's armor. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like they live in a future with pretty advanced guns, I imagine. I'm I'm pretty sure that sort of armor wouldn't do anything. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I will say I enjoyed the scene with Rumba Rawl in the uh in the jazz bar. Mm-hmm. That. I thought that was a pretty well-illustrated scene, uh, just watching them as they, one, listen to music and just uh, the couple of pages dedicated to, uh, you know, watching Haman, uh, you know, sing and croon and just everybody uh, appreciating the music. The, the couple of pages that was dedicated to that, it was... There's something about the the liveliness of it that's pretty captivating, you know? Yeah, totally. His art yeah. 
is excellent in those scenes. Yeah. Just a couple panels showing the musicians and then the crowd. Yeah. It, it's, it's yeah, he doesn't done. devote yeah, he doesn't devote a whole ton of pages or space to it, but yeah. what he does give us just sets the mood so yeah. well. Like you're yeah. instantly just drawn in and your mind can picture the scene and, and you can practically hear the music in your imagination as you read it. Yeah. And then for that scene to turn into this pretty big fight scene between a broken rumba raw and just barge drunk federation soldiers. Yeah. It's it's a pretty entertaining fight to watch. Yeah. Um, I liked it when he when he shoved the microphone into the dude's <laughs> mouth and he was like, sing us a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I can only hope that if I'm ever in that same situation, I have the wherewithal to say that line. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to require that the guy who who was there uh give you that setup, right? Because the whole thing before it was about how this dude didn't want to listen to her sing anymore because they wanted karaoke. Yeah. So, <laughs> he, he, they need to give you the line that necessitates you shoving a mic in their mouth or down their throat and going, sing me a song. <laughs> I need to go to a karaoke bar and try to get into a fight there and make sure I can win. Yeah. But I think the biggest takeaway from this chapter is the surprise reveal of the mobile worker suit. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, in, in a in a volume of the manga that's dedicated to giving the back stories to so much, I, uh, I guess I wasn't really expecting to see the origin of the actual mobile suit. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think up to this point it had occurred to me that I necessarily needed it. I just... You know, it it was clearly an element of the story that was a deciding factor in how the the war plays out. But I guess I I I didn't think I needed at the time. Uh, I I didn't think I needed the backstory for it. But getting it here and now, that is. It's 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 pretty dramatic. I think it's a nice dramatic touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something interesting about seeing how that it's essentially a pet project of of Dozel, and yeah, the fact that he's willing to recruit Rambaral, knowing that he's got special skills as a soldier. It's there's there's definitely a part of you that makes you question why is Dozel doing the, like trying to recruit someone who's should be his enemy. Yeah. Well, it's another indicator that Dozel He's different. Yeah, might not be as bad as the other two. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say and tying him to this project also shows that he's not as much of a bumbling idiot or buffoon yeah. as yeah, we thought exactly. he was. Exactly. Yeah. He's got some military um, savvy, I guess, would yeah. be word, or just understanding yeah. of what's necessary when when uh, preparing for war. Yeah. I mean, if you were to really draw a line between this moment, this key moment, and 
everything that's happened in their universe up to this point, you could even make the argument that the the zombies wouldn't be able to do what they've done if it wasn't for him. Yeah, that's true. The the their mobile suits that was what gave them the advantage early on in the war. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, heck, they still hold that advantage now because mm-hmm. they're the Federation is now just trying to make their Gundam units, and they just have the one. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah. they they have been making their they've been starting to make their mass produced uh, mobile suits because remember at the end of Volume Four when they were in Jabro during that big battle. A bunch of new mobile suits that the Federation had developed uh, entered the battle. Do you remember that? Remember uh, when the, when the little kids uh, disarmed those bombs? It was in the oh, hangar yeah, 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 where yeah. all those you're mobile right, suits you're right. were. You're, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 There we go. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So like that was the first time that those things saw action. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Any other thoughts, or you want to move on to the next chapter? Yeah, we can move on to the next chapter. Uh, I guess the only other thing in Chapter 6 was seeing uh, Mirai briefly with her father. Because she's someone uh, in the previous volumes, we get the sense that she's somebody important too. And here we learn that her father owns this company that apparently buys up uh, space colonies. Yeah. It's funny how they named that colony Texas, and it's designed to look like Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now that you mention it, I, I guess another detail that's worth mentioning is that the whole thing with Jim Barral and these assassins that came for them, like, I think they mentioned at one point in the in the manga that if he hadn't tried to reach out to the arms contractor, if he wasn't trying mm-hmm. to make these deals, then uh, Zabi wouldn't have sent the assassins for him. Yeah. So, yeah, his actions ultimately led to drawing their attention to him and getting him, getting him killed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one who got killed. A bunch of the other people who worked in the house got killed too. Yeah, they were killing everybody in there, like medical staff and you know, not just the men, <laughs> but, but the, the women, women and, and the, the children. children too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chapter 7. Tibolo Edward, Sela, and their contingent are at the spaceport to move to Texas Colony. We also get a cameo of a young Amaro with his father, Tem Ray. Back on side three, Hamon visits her friend, Astrea, and we see that the years have not been kind to Astrea. We get another little flashback within the flashback, going back to their younger years at the nightclub and Astrea's relationship with Dakin. Meanwhile, Ramba and the Black Tristars have been testing out these new mobile workers under Dozel's command. One day after he's done test piloting, Ramba visits Hamon at the club and she tells him that Astrea is in poor health and she gives him some updates on Casval and Artesia. 
We then see the mass contingent arrive at Texas Colony in Side 5, where they meet Roger and Michelle Asnable, who manage the village. They get settled in, and we are treated to a fun scene of Edward and Sela riding horses. It is at this time they are introduced to Shar Asnable, who is a dead ringer for Casval. Time passes as the kids get settled into their new home. Sela continues her habit of writing letters to her mother, but while she's writing, her brother enters her room with the terrible news that their mother is dead. Hmm. That was a pretty sad ending to that chapter. I felt that I really felt for Sela. Like she's always been one of my favorite characters and, and like seeing all the stuff that she's had to endure in her young life in the flashback. It's uh, yeah, it, it's, it's almost like interesting how, the manga structures the story in a way where Shar is not only a foil for Amaro, but Sela is a foil for Shar. Like I, I felt like that wasn't really something that I saw or got too much out of in the anime, but here in the manga, when we have so much time spent with both Shar and Sela. You can't help but make that comparison because they they go through essentially the same experiences, but the way that yeah. they turn out as adults is super different. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting to think on Sela because knowing what we know of her in this, of uh, how she was in her youth. And comparing that to the adult version of her that we see uh, mm-hmm. in in the earlier volumes, it's pretty pretty stark contrast. Just looking at that, you know. Yeah. It's it's interesting to think on uh, again just what these experiences did to her and how they shaped her, and I guess yeah, I, I mean I mean her. Her life follows the same trajectory as Shar, and it it's hardened both of them to mm-hmm. some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely see that. Yeah, yeah, she's definitely hardened as an adult, and yet, even though she's hardened, she doesn't feel unkind or anything, you know? Yeah. But yeah. she still has a sense of compassion for others something that Shar sorely lacks. Yeah. 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 It's so when you mentioned that in addition to Amaro and Shar being foils to one another, this idea that Sela is a foil as well. That's a, that's a good observation. Yeah. It's, Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm looking at this chapter, and uh, yeah, the so you you get the the end of what's her name, Artesius, Astrea, the mother. Astrea. Yeah, you get the end yeah. of her story. Um, you also get 
a couple more scenes of more gun down uh, of the mobile uh, workers being tested out further, you know, flushing flushing out that element of it. Um, I did enjoy seeing them on the ranch for a bit too. Um, yeah, that, that mm-hmm. there's there's this whole bit where Eduardo rides off and. The moment that Salas sees Char, the real Char, Char, the real Char, mm-hmm. she's struck by, I mean, by the fact that he's, you know... Uh, he looks like her brother. Yeah, he's the spitting image of her brother, which I, I have to admit, that's, that's one of those uh, story tropes that doesn't... It's not one of my favorites. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's it's something where I can't help but look at this story and think to myself, is that something that they had to do? Do they have to look like <clears throat> did they have to look like each other? Could they have just not? <laughs> it would have but, been fine if they were just both blonde, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it says here that they looked almost exactly like one another, except their eyes were different color. It's I I just find that hard to believe, but yeah. But whatever. I mean, at this point, the the story has me has enough of my confidence confidence where I can overlook something like that. Mm-hmm. Plus, I'm guessing at this point you kind of saw where this was all heading for the real Char, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Uh, I I had a vague idea of what was going to happen, but mm-hmm. there was a part of me that was well. You know what? I'll save it for when we get there. But uh, okay. yeah, okay. I you you could definitely tell that they were setting something up by having these two quote unquote look alike. Sorry, Pepper is uh snoring, snoring. crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what she's up to. Uh, but anyways, uh, the one scene that I wanted to mention is there's this one moment where the two of them ride up on each other and Eduardo and Char see each other for the first time. And it's this really tense moment where they're just kind of exchanging glances at one another. And then when you turn the page, they just high-five each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say something about that. It, it's definitely got '80s movies vibes, yeah, right? Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's their Top Gun moment, <laughs> <laughs> or or Rocky Three where they're just running on the beach with one another, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> so good. It's pretty funny, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when you when we. When you first saw uh, the Aznables, Roger and his wife, like, was that when you started to put the pieces together and started to see where Shar's story was going, or like, what, or what were you, what was going in your mind at that point? So, uh, I don't really want to go over it until we get to the end of it, but okay, okay, uh, would you no, rather wait to? to the- no, we can yeah. save it to the end then. Yeah, that's okay, okay. totally fine. 
Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's move on then. So we ended the chapter with the kids learning that their mother has died. And then chapter eight, we open with the mass family at a gravestone for Estrella. It's purely symbolic. Her remains are not buried there. And the gravestone doesn't even have her name on it because it's dangerous if their true identities were to come out. As the days pass, it's obvious that Sayla is hurting as she regularly spends time by this gravestone talking to it. One day, she's riding a horse and encounters three local bullies who have a beef who have a beef with her brother because he kind of beat them up recently. They try to pick on her, but she stands up for herself and gives one of them a good slapping. On another day, Don Tibolo, Sayla, and Edward go to the center village and were treated to an Old West atmosphere, really living up to the name of the Texas colony. Tibolo goes to the town to talk to the local school headmaster, but the guy essentially cowers in front of him and tells Tibolo that Edward is too scary and has to leave the school. Tibolo is furious, and Roger Asnabal tries to calm him down. As they chat a bit, we learn that Roger's son, Shar, is excited to enroll in the Xeon Military Academy. While this is happening, Edward and Sela are waiting at a pub, but eventually Edward has had enough of the Zabi spy tailing them, and he assaults and beats the grown man in a violent manner. Only Sela's intervention prevents him from doing something deadly. After they return home, Shar Aznable joins them all for dinner, proudly showing off his acceptance letter to Zeon's military academy. He's clearly been drinking the Zabi Kool-Aid and fervently regurgitates their propaganda. Sela excuses herself from the dinner table, and we see that Lucifer, her cat, isn't doing too well. He's not eating his favorite foods, and he's been making odd sounds. Unfortunately, he dies that night, and the chapter ends with yet another heartbreaking scene. Sela has buried Lucifer, next to her mother's gravestone. And while she's there, Edward tells her that he's going to leave Texas and move to Loom, another colony inside five. Soon, Sayla will be alone. I was sad when the cat died, man. Yeah, poor Lucifer. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You just wanted to say poor Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh Yeah, there's more setup going on here. It's it's like you said we 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 see the pieces slowly moving into place and um there's there's something it 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 feels like the death of her mom and oddly enough the cat too it does set something off inside her you know mm-hmm. like this is kind of the moment where maybe the the cute naive kid isn't isn't really there any longer you know mm-hmm. yeah it's there's heck there's this scene where where you mentioned Eduardo is beating up this guy and she's 
she comes out there and she confronts him. And in, in light of everything that's happened in, in light of the fact that their mother died, she, she's just yelling at him and, you know, asking him, how could you do this? What have you when, done? Yeah. What have you done? Even though, you know, with everything that's going on, what have you done? Right. Mm-hmm. And then it just ends with her telling him that she hates him. It's it's a pretty evocative moment for her. Someone yeah. who's been through so much and has been pretty cheerful and optimistic the the whole time through. Yeah. Never never saying like a harsh word to anyone and then when her mom dies that's that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah. I I do want to go back to that scene that you just mentioned where she tells her brother that she hates him. Um, And he he does, like, there's a couple panels where he looks contrite and he says, I'm sorry, Artesia, I won't do it again. And then she just hugs him, like, completely leans into him and and starts crying. And that's a very realistically emotional human scene to me. Like, I... Like, just the way that their bodies are posed and the way that even the characters in the background are looking at them, like, that's a scene that just feels correct. Like, I I completely buy into the emotion and the drama because it's just sold and presented in, and executed in such a well-crafted and perfect manner. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I also like how, like in the scene preceding that, the Don, he has that conversation with the schoolmaster. It's cool because you really get the sense that Don Tibolo genuinely cares about both of the kids. Like he's, like earlier in in a previous chapter, he said that he had adopted them and is raising them as if they were his own kids. But like just seeing stuff that he does when the kids aren't even present. Like, that really makes you feel like he is their father, you know? I guess that's another thing that I dig, the whole single father thing. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm a sucker for that element. <laughs> yeah, that's your pet theme. Sorry, I didn't realize yeah. I was on mute. <laughs> but, yeah, going back to that one particular scene, though, the the other thing that, that was interesting to me was in, in previous episodes that we did in in previous volumes that we were reviewing we talked about how there was there's something about char that's almost sociopathic mm-hmm. in in just how he views people or in just how generally unfeeling and uncaring he is towards people period right uh yeah the way that he doesn't really have any loyalties towards, uh, uh, towards the the Zebad, what, towards towards the Empire or or towards the Federation, right? Mm-hmm. And in this scene where he's at the school, where they're talking about how how just how scary how smart he is, and you know this guy's trying to talk about how oh we want to uh you know kicking up kip kick him up a couple of grades so that he can graduate earlier or we just don't even really want him at this school and you know 
Don Teobolo doesn't really know what's going on. And when he confronts him, the guy just straight up says, we're terrified of this kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really solidifies that image of him as being maybe a little monster. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's also interesting because the headmaster admits that it's not like Char is a bully in the sense that he's just going around like attacking other kids or whatever. Yeah. He even concedes that since Char came to the school, the other bullies have fallen in line because they're scared of him or like, you know, we clearly saw him beat up those other bullies. Yeah. But just the fact that this adult, this grown man in authority at the school admits that he's scared of Char. Yeah. of Casval, of Edward, whatever you want to call him. It there there's something I guess pathetic is the word that comes to mind. There's something pathetic about that. Well, the old man is definitely pathetic, but it's also telling that I guess you could say that there's that he's observant too in a way that he's there's a recognition of something in Shar. Mm-hmm. Or in Eduardo, uh, that yeah, there, there's there's something telling in his personality, and, and like you said, they admit that it's not like he's going out into the woods and killing animals or anything, but there's enough there where looking at him and getting a sense of what his behaviors and attitudes are, there's something there to that. That you should be scared of. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He saw and it I, first, man. He said, too bad nobody listened to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If uh, if the zombies had listened to him, they'd be down one less enemy, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I also wanted to go over that uh, the one scene at the dinner table, too, uh, where... Where the real Char, uh, you know, he's talking about how he's excited to join the military academy. This is everything that he wanted. And this is the scene that I was talking about earlier where he talks about how, you know, the the Earth Federation are all entitled because just by the very virtue of where they were born, they feel like they can – the Earthnoids can – look down upon the space noids mm-hmm. and and this is this is the scene where for me anyways you can definitely see like the difference between char and eduardo even though they are even though they look alike um just there are things about them that are pretty different. Just their demeanor, just the way that they hold themselves, so that even when you see them side by side, you can kind of tell what the difference is. Mm-hmm. This this Char is not is not a particularly bright dude. He is not. <laughs> he is. Yeah, he's really not. And I would, I would even say he's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, easily manipulated. I'm I'm uh, looking at the first panel on page 406, and this is when he gets particularly passionate about what he's talking about, and he he says, "It's just as Giran Zabi says: Earth robs us spacenoids of our assets, and with that very wealth, Earthnoids just keep driving Gaia, mother to us all." further down a blighted path and he's pounding the table to emphasize his point it's like dude come on where are you getting this he's a doofus to that propaganda yeah yeah he's i i have a feeling there are a lot more people like him than than we let on in the world you know yeah Yeah. He, he might he might be more typical than we expect they are in texas Ooh. Oof. <laughs> Texas Colony, man. Texas Colony. No, nothing metaphorical about it, man. Yeah. You want to move on to the next chapter? Yeah. Yeah, then I can finally hear what you were going to say earlier. Okay, let's go so, for it. Chapter 9. Edward and Shar have a conversation, and it seems like Shar, for all, for all his idealism, is rather naive and dumb. And dumb. <laughs> Cassilia Zavi learns from her spies that Casval has left Texas Colony and gives the order to kill him once and for all. Back on Texas Colony, Sela confides to Roger Asnable that her brother is trying to go to Zeon and she wants to talk him out of it. However, Edward and Shar are both at the spaceport. Edward cunningly manipulates Shar and the situation masterfully to trade places with him. The shuttle to Xeon that the real Shar Aznable boards is utterly destroyed in an explosion. While Edward Casval boards another shuttle and safely arrives at Xeon. The world thinks Edward Mass is dead and the Zabis can think that Casval Remdekun is dead. Long live Shar Aznable. He's there for the opening ceremony of the incoming class at the Xeon Military Academy. Giran Zabi gives a speech full of Xeonic exceptionalism before Dozel addresses the students to hype them up for their military training. The students are introduced in a roll call, and at the end, Garma Zabi, Shars, one of Shar's new classmates, stands to represent their class. Whew. So there we have it. Yeah. His uh his origin completely unfolded for all the world to see. We have the definitive origin of his. So what was it that you were gonna say earlier about Shar and his whole thing? So when I first saw like it was clear that their fates were tied to one another. And I think in that first scene when when uh, the real Shar first shows up, it's... I don't think it's obviously clear that he's an idiot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> Not at that he's, point, because he hasn't said much yet. Yeah, exactly. But Once he opens even, his mouth, you're like, yeah. man, this guy dumb. <laughs> but even looking at him, he, he seems a lot cooler in in that in that opening appearance right yeah and so when i was seeing him with eduardo side by side and just 
you know, watching them have their moment, there was a part of me that wasn't sure if Eduardo would be the one to live and to take over the identity of Char, or if something would happen to Eduardo and Char would be the one who, mm. you know, uh, takes on the mantle, or you know, if something was going to happen there in in that regard. So oh, okay, I see, I see where, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's interesting. There, yeah, yeah. There was a part of me that I guess was running through the scenario and trying to uh, figure out how how it would play out. But like you said, as as the chapters moved on and as the real Char revealed himself to be a doofus, it it became abundantly clear. Well, no, even then, I would say that I think there was a part of me that was wondering whether if if Eduardo died, if that would be the th- the inciting event that would get Char to not be a doofus. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that would but, have been quite the swerve if that's what had actually happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, when when we got to the end, and uh, you know, once we get to the part where they get to the ship, and yeah, and they're talking about uh, you know how he was gonna miss his flight and all that. At that point, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, he's the one that's gonna die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, even his last moments, unfortunately, he's he was still... pretty undignified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was not a, a noble, heroic way to go out at yeah. all. Yeah, <laughs> and he still had no idea what was going on. Yeah, he yeah. couldn't put two and two together. Yeah, I forget who uh, whose kid is Shar actually supposed to be? He's Roger Asnable. The guy that owns the colony, right? He so the colon the colony was actually owned by Mirai's father's company, but uh-huh. uh, Roger Asnable was the guy who was basically like the manager of this of the city there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that final note. Uh, for them to to end on that note where. Char is at the military academy and he he takes notice of Garma uh and gives him a a knowing look almost <laughs> a nod to us I know it sounds a lot more salacious right <laughs> <laughs> You just made me instantly think back to the shower scene from volume 2 <laughs> But it it just feels like for us the reader it's a moment that acknowledges Hey, this is this is the moment that he puts his plan into action. Uh, you know, it may take a few years, but somewhere down the line, he's gonna he's gonna find a way to strike back at this family. Yeah, and he's gonna do it through through their kid. Yeah, you gotta attack the weakest link, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, going back to what we said earlier, when the bomb killed Sasro Zabi. They really should have killed Garma instead. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't. <laughs> if they could have seen the future, 
killing Garma would have been the better the better route to take. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have given Shar an in. Exactly. Uh, gosh. What were your thoughts on Giran Zabi's speech in this chapter? He gives a speech addressing the students and it starts on like page 445 and goes for the next couple pages. Uh, it's interesting hon- that those are the color pages too. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it made me think of Dwight Schrute in the office <laughs> as he's giving a speech to motivate all the other paper salesmen. But what alone moves the wheels of history? <laughs> exactly, where he's just like cripping notes from Stalin and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> all these famous dictators. Yeah. And he's slamming the table like Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing about fascist. When you're not a fascist, you can look at that and you can ridicule it and kind of laugh at it. But to other fascists, those are empowering words. Those are inspiring words. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to relate to that. Yeah, I'm not, I don't have that, I'm not insane enough to think that that's okay or acceptable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm going to post the post pictures of this speech on, on the gram later, because it, it's just, man, with no context, it's it's it truly does feel like comedic you know like what you were saying yeah. about the office but in in context of the story the people he's talking to they're yeah. they're dead serious you know heck it, it's it's a bunch of people who are fanatics yeah yeah i was also gonna say heck in the context of real life there is also something upsetting about it <laughs> as an idea you know, yeah. But especially when we look when when we compare it to just everything that's happening in the world. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right, man. Yeah. You're right. It, yeah. That that adds a level of just yeah. It's just chilling. Yeah. In a way, because uh, some of the stuff that he says comes across at least to sane minds as outrageous yeah. but it's also not that far off from what actual fascists and dictators in history have said yeah yeah and it's also dangerously similar to a lot of current uh politicians who have heavily leaned into like populism and the stuff that you might hear from from the alt-right or you know those kind of groups that we once thought were fringe groups but yeah <laughs> apparently have a lot more supporters than I ever imagined. And I, yeah. you know, something that I was completely ignorant of just a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause when I, when I think about it, man, I'm pretty sure I read, I originally read this comic, uh, like quite a while ago, like probably like 2000, uh, 2015. So it was like 
maybe right on the cusp of that era when we were starting to realize that these fringe groups were more prominent than we realized. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. rereading it now, like for some reason, these are this like these speeches that Giran Zabi has given. Those are the things that really jump out at me and. Like I, I reread those a couple times just like to make sure that I was reading what I thought I read. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I, I just feel like in today's world, it. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's just chilling, man. Yeah. It's chilling. Like when I read it the first time around, it didn't really cross my mind that this could be taken seriously. It was more like yeah. along the lines of, oh yeah, he's just like saying stuff to rile up his people, and you know, that's just. That's just the dialogue that was written. And then now it, it takes on this extra level of meaning that yeah. is a it's it's a it's a little uncomfortable because of the real world implications. Not yeah. not yeah. it's not uncomfortable because I, I I think that Yasuhiko believes this stuff or whatever, you know, obviously he's he doesn't and he's just yeah. writing the story, but um just in light of nerve. what yeah, just in just in light of what america is like today yeah i can't help but think of of those kind of connections yeah i i remember when we started this uh series um you know for gundam uh the origin you you were sending me like random uh social media posts and tweets about it about this series and I think you sent me some uh some some posts that some people had put up where they looked at the the zombies as the hero. They looked <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's that's what it was, right? Where they looked they they looked at the entirety of the story and in their mind uh the federation was the enemy and they were uplifting the ideals of the zombies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but extrapolate on that notion <laughs> and, again, think about it and what it has to say about people who are drawn to fascism as a whole. There's almost this element of it where it's like there's something novel about it and that's what initially draws people to it. I, I mean, maybe novelty isn't the right word, but there's something, there's definitely something alluring about it. And, mm-hmm. and thinking about that now where people are more okay with that idea now than they have been in a very long while. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uneasy feeling to have. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean there was a there it felt like there was a period in time where we were firmly in the fascism is a bad thing camp. But, yeah. But now there are, you know, very fine people on both sides. Yeah, and we can and again, they can look at that they and on some level it feels like it almost starts with something like this, where they can look at uh fictional fascist and that's okay. And it allows them to draw a conclusion to how real fascists can be okay. Mm-hmm. So do you th- do you think that uh, it's okay 
to cosplay as a Xeon soldier? Like, if you were a cosplayer, would you cosplay as a Xeon soldier or as one of the zombies? Well, so here's the interesting thing. There are... There's certain iconography within the manga that is not just fascistic, but it's almost borderline Nazi. Mm -hmm. So I think if they cosplay using some of that stuff, like, you know, red armbands and what are those called? The the storm trooper jackets or whatever they have. The, the mm. like, I know what you're talking about. The kind of that very specific design, right? Like, the, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the type of jacket yeah, is called, it, but mm-hmm. even even if the swastika isn't on the red armband, I, I think instinctively we can all look at that and kind of know what it is that we're looking at. Yeah, you know, there's a reason that that imagery and that iconography was chosen as the template for how these characters look right mm-hmm. so if someone went with that very specific costume i would i'd probably stay away from them <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's not quite the same as someone who dresses up as a stormtrooper from star wars right yeah, yeah, there's a big difference between dressing up as a Zeon soldier or yeah. a stormtrooper. I think my first thought would be, is this person trying to be an edge lord? Are they, <laughs> are they like purposely dressing this way just to, you know, just to uh, get under people's skin to own people or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> like that, that would be my first thought. I w- I wouldn't, I. I'd have to really ponder at what it is that I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah. What about dressing up as or cosplaying as Shar himself? Because he's still wearing that Xeon accoutrement, but you could make the argument that he himself is not a fascist and is, is you know... Yeah. It, you can make the argument that you can dress up as as Char, ironically, you know. Um, I think I think I'm okay with uh, someone dressing up as Char, or uh, well, you know, relatively speaking. <laughs> but <laughs> because I think the outfit is different enough from. The other zombies uh, that are clearly going for more of a specifically Nazi look, and um, and I do think his look is unique enough where people would look at that, and the association is more with the character rather than the mm-hmm. like associations. You yeah. know. Yeah, so, you're right. You're right. In that regard, that makes it more palatable yeah yeah i think that's i think that's my stance on that makes sense makes sense yeah yep any final thoughts or comments no it's uh i i think that was a a a good note to end the manga on i don't know what volume six has in store for us but we will be reading that i don't know if volume six is going to be more flashback or if we return to the present 
I'm I'm curious about that, but you know, this was a good good volume of the series. I uh I enjoyed it. It's 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 a good injection of just real meat into into what we've read so far. Mm-hmm. It's 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 giving me the connective tissue so that I can further go down the path that the story wants to take me to take me down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you what the next volume is about because you're going to discover that for yourself. Yep. I'm yep. going to spoil it for you, man. <laughs> yep. Good idea. But I'm looking forward to it just as much, if not more, as you are. So I'm yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped to continue on. All right. Sweet. With that said, next week we're gonna be doing our autopsy on the Moon Knight TV show. Yeah. Gird your loins for that. I think <laughs> I think I'm gonna have some hot takes on it for sure. I've I've already watched the first three episodes and uh yeah, I've got thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> and uh you know if uh, anyone has anything that they want to say about this week's episode any questions about gundam the origin or you know uh just any comments or or contributions we'd love to hear it feel free to email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on our instagram uh you know at between the gutters follow us there and you know like and subscribe all that stuff and share or you can tweet at us at between the gutters as well so uh yeah we uh, look forward to hearing from you and oh yeah also if you can rate us on whatever platform you're listening to uh that would be a great help too yeah thanks a lot everybody this is between the gutters signing off peace out bye guys <laughs>